Real Talkers, greetings on this Wednesday. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside our technical producer, Samuel G. Brooks. Good morning, everyone. Who is uh, is is lacking. And Sam, I usually compliment you, but you're lacking sympathy today. And I would ask that you wipe that grin off your face after seeing me smash my funny bone on the arm of the chair five seconds before the show started. I'm in, I'm in agony, and I look in over. Ag- you you, right, you look right. over like it's the funniest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. I, I mean... Not the funniest thing I've seen in my entire life, but like I can, I can, I can relish in a little bit. Knowing that you're okay, I can giggle a bit at you smashing your elbow into the chair before we those, go on. Those are always, those are like the the back in the day, like the the um, you know, the shows like America's Funniest Home Videos, and yeah, that, and then and then that turned into that basically begat YouTube. I would say so, yeah, and uh, and then all the other spinoff shows, and those those shows were always funny because you'd see something happen. Uh, usually, uh, I'm going to be a little, just a little bit crass for a second just to get to the point. I'm just going to be crude for a second to get to the point. Like 80% of those shows were dads getting hit in the nuts. Absolutely. That's that's what the whole show was. Yeah. With uh, swing sets and T-balls and rakes. Wh- rakes. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It was just guys getting hit in the crotch. And, uh, and that, that always felt like the right protocol, what you just identified. Uh, quick and immediate burst of laughter. Followed by self-awareness, uh, determination that the the person is okay or will be okay, and then return to laughter. Yeah, you double down on the laughter once you know that they're fine. That's that's kind of the courteous way to to revel in someone else's discomfort I or pain. Say so yeah, but I'll tell you what. Um, just in case anybody was really concerned, I'm already okay again. Okay, everyone. that's good. I'm already okay. Um, and I'm going to be, it's a good thing. Cause I'm going to, I have this, I'm going to have to use this art. I'm going to have to read through emails. I'm going to have to be moving papers around. So it's a very good thing that I've not sustained it's, a serious it's quite injury. A physical strenuous job that you do. You know, there, there are people out there that think that they work hard, yeah. but they don't sit in a podcast studio for two hours a day and read emails. They don't know. Some of these people need to walk a mile in our shoes, Sam. Your 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 beautiful fluvog shoes. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to today's show. How much? Uh, so we're we're gonna learn a little bit on the show today. Uh, coming up in about an ha- a half hour's time, we're gonna check in with Elizabeth Howcroft, who's gonna join us out of London, England. Uh, That's where she's based as a financial journalist for Reuters. How familiar are you? With the story that she's about to tell us, Sam, how familiar are you with the trend that is these NFTs? Uh, I am familiar with it as of 20 minutes ago when you sent me the article to read through and get some video ready. So this is this was completely off my radar up until now. And I'm really excited to learn about it. I also like how you tee up the show saying we're going to learn something today as if we don't do that on every single show. That's our mandate. Yeah, we do. We demand of ourselves that we learn something each and every day. Otherwise, why are we here? And what's the point? Um, you, you misspoke, I think, just not to put you on the spot and not to correct you. But you said you started learning about NFTs when I sent you something 20 minutes ago to c- capture an element for the show. And and obviously that's a mistake because no reasonable host would send you elements 20 minutes before a broadcast. And no, expect- not one bit. You must that, have that meant. Def- I, I meant 20 minutes ago. Yes. You must have meant yesterday yeah. because that would be ridiculous. 
if somebody were to send you things within 20 minutes of the beginning of a live show when you're busy, you're turning on studio lights, engaging temperatures and lining up. Can you explain to the people why when I walk in, you're clapping your hands and act, you, you I, I, I just uh, the, Sam's by himself here in the studio, just clapping his hands. Like literally, a, um, I literally I just wanted to check Jespo's mic and he wasn't here yet. So I turned it on, ran over to my desk, put the headphones on and just clapped from my desk to make sure I could hear it through the line. It's a very scientific process. It's a very scientific process. It's very complicated. Most of you would not understand. I mean, the technology, the approach that we take to this. So Sam is hard at work trying to get all these things done. And then all of a sudden it's like ding, ding, ding. You know, the highfalutin host that walks in seconds before we go to air. You know, when the car drops him off, pulls up to the front. You know, they get out, they open the door for me, right? Yeah. I have a I have the um, uh, Jeeves has the uh, I ask him to iron the copy of the New York Times. Of there's course, no, there's nothing worse than a wrinkled newspaper. Yeah. Uh, so he does so, he get out and uh, does he get out and shovel the walk in your path in case it's not like ready to well, go? Because we did you? that. We got him that that uh, collapsible mat. It's like oh, a, it's yes, that, of that course. red. Yeah. That red sort of a carpet mat that thing sense. that rolls up. So he gets out. He sort of does that. So it covers all the so then I don't get my flu vogs dirty like you said. So I roll in. I've got my ironed New York Times. I've got my, uh, my that, that uh, was flown in from New York for yeah, you this my, morning. My right? half sweet, non-fat, hundred and forty-eight degree caramel macchiato, you know, ready yep. to go. And and I walk in here with with moments to go, and and there's Sam just clapping away. So it's going to be a great show. We're grateful to have you all here with us. If this is somebody's first time tuning in, they're like, somebody told me that this was a good and serious show, but I'm not. I'm not so. Did these? If you're did, a first time viewer. This is it. This did is all what their you get. did all their guests cancel on them or something? Is there a reason why? Is can can somebody explain to us what's going on right now? Um, Kim says Sam is obviously underpaid. Sam Sam is uh is, is this talk about you forming a union? This is that's a joke, right? Oh, um, we heard uh, rum- yeah. I heard rumblings because because we've intercepted Sam's emails. Well, because- uh, your management, so no comment. Okay, Ooh, yeah. no comment. Will the real talk team see a divisive union formed here in the? You know what's going to happen? We're going to start joking, and then people that are actually hardworking union members are going to be like, "Oh, what? You think unions are funny? You think this is a joke? Huh? You think talking about pay increases is some sort of a joke?" So, uh. Craig's wondering whatever happened to Ask Jeeves. That was like the original Google, wasn't it? There, because I remember back in the day, there's like there was there was there was jockeying for attention. There was like Yahoo was huge, and there was Ask Jeeves. Do you remember Dogpile? No. Dogpile was another search engine, and my favorite thing about Dogpile is the the search button said fetch. So oh, it was that's dog themed search engine. That's fine. Google swallowed them all up. But, Why do you yeah. think? What was it? Uh, you have to wonder because when Ask Jeeves came out, it was like it was like the hot new thing. People would say, "There's this website, and you just type, um, you you just type into the, and then you can ask it any question, and it just answers your question. It gets yeah, you the answer to the question. Their whole hook was you could actually like write things as a question and would give you an answer as an answer. I don't know. The early days of the internet was a fun time. Yeah. The early days of the Internet and the present day of the Internet still, I would imagine, search engines are very helpful for for law enforcement agencies, Revenue Canada, you know, people typing in like, you know, how do I launder money? How do I how do I hide cash? I would imagine that a lot of the questions that are submitted to I I, I did a a stand up. uh, it, It wasn't great and I didn't win, but I did a I participated in a media stand up comedy competition several years ago. Is this the one that Connolly keeps winning? 
Yeah, well, Connolly won the one that I participated okay. in. Yeah, uh, that's Mark Connolly, CBC. For anybody that's that's outside Alberta, um, I was robbed. Obviously, obviously, <laughs> obviously, I was very funny, and uh, and I did a bit on. <laughs> I did a bit. On, it was weird. No comedy clubs came calling after my, which was which was. I don't know. I was. I had my phone there. I kept checking to make sure it was where I had full bars. I had reception. There was no call coming through. You, you didn't have a talent agent approach was, you on the floor. It was strange. Yeah. I know it was. It was very strange. Uh, but I did do a bit on. Uh, I did a bit on. Uh, uh, Jeff Dodger is listening in right now from Pritis, Alberta, right now, and 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 he's on his way into, into his. He says this is the best opening, and he simply sends me a photo of Jeeves opening up the door of the stretch. Uh, it looks looks to me to be an SUV limo that he's suggesting we might use with the red carpet. But I'm I'm thrilled that Dodsworth is streaming us live on Mixler right now on his way into work. Um, Dodsworth drives himself. So maybe if you maybe if he'd work a little harder, somebody would be driving him into work. Maybe maybe we'll dangle that carrot. Maybe if he worked a little harder, somebody would be driving him into work. Um, but I did a bit on stand up. I did a bit on how I thought that that uh, parenting, you could have interventions on the people that shouldn't be parents. You know, the conversations we always have, like, you know, you should have to get a license to be a parent. You should have to get a permit to be a parent. And I often thought that that child services could simply monitor Google searches to determine which par- where where an intervention was needed. That's a good bit. I like that. Cuz there's little there's queries about things like poison control, yeah. you know, but you'd also get, you know, can you feed your child candy for breakfast? You'd probably get is it really that important to brush your kid's teeth if it's still the first set of teeth? The baby teeth. You're going to lose them anyway. All of these. They're due for replacement. You're going to lose them anyway. And wouldn't you rather get your adult teeth in, your your permanent teeth, so to speak? Wouldn't you rather get them in as soon as possible? That's how it works, right? This is why I'm not in charge of the parenting in our house. It's why I'm not in charge. So to get back to the point, hey, to get serious for a second, um, First interview coming up in about 20 minutes and we're going to get to a bunch of your emails today. We have some some great takes on yesterday's show and the show before and the more emails we read, the more emails we receive. So we're we're creating a bit of a problem for ourselves. It's a wonderful problem, but we might have to have a separate show that just reads emails every day. Why don't we make that a Patreon exclusive? That could be a Patreon. No, but see, Sam, here's the thing. Uh-huh. It's more work for us. That's true. And I'm already stretched, like I said, here for two hours a day, uh, you know, and uh, I just I'm just not sure. That sounds like a lot of work to me. It sounds like a lot of work. Um, okay, so she's going to come on. Our first guest, Reuters financial journalist, as mentioned, and uh, and she's written this piece. Uh, I just was chatting with her, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Howcroft, by the way, out of London, uh, just a few minutes ago. and She's ready to go. This is a story out of October 2020. There's an art collector uh, named Pablo Rodriguez Fry, and he spent $67,000 on a 10-second video. Uh, do you have it locked and loaded? And have we determined, yeah, by the way, can we even show this? Are we allowed to show it? It belongs to this guy. If we credit him, it belongs. The point is, and I need to ask Elizabeth this, like, why is this thing worth now like a year and a, no, not even a year in October 2020, like less than six months ago? OK, here's this video. OK, it appears to be, you know, former reality uh, TV performer Donald Trump lying face down, defaced in a park and sort of digitized people walking past while a bird lands on him. And there's, is that how you describe it, Sam? Am I describing it? Okay. I think people, describing it. people listening yeah. on the podcast are, are, are going to want a, a vivid description of what we're talking about here. 
It's just a 10-second video loop. Now, in October of 2020, you may have thought that this art collector was was a little off his rocker spending $67,000 for that. Well, guess what? Last week, like five months later, he sold it for $6.6 million. That is a $6.6 million video clip that we just showed you right here on Real Talk, your $6.6 million talk show. Now, it's authenticated by blockchain. Blockchain serves as the digital signature to certify who owns it and that it's the original work. It's a new type of digital asset known as a non-fungible token, an NFT. It's an item that only exists online. And I'm curious to see where Elizabeth will take this. She describes it as one of the most fascinating stories that she's ever told. But I'm hearing that this could get into things like hockey cards, music collectibles. This could be the new face of it. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, and I think that it's also just interesting, you know, um, art is becoming more digital or I shouldn't say it is becoming more digital because, you know, classic forms of art are still thriving everywhere. But but as digital artists come online and are pursuing their craft in like, you know, an entirely virtual arena, there needs to be a way to authenticate and pay them and transfer these works. And For so sure. I, I can kind of see this becoming a trend, you know. But if you want, I mean, like if I'm spending 6.6 million, I mean, I'm considering it. I'm considering liquidating some. I'm considering, you know, you know, I, I, six million here, six million there. We'll see. Maybe you'll give Jeeves a day off and like. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe I'll buy him a painting. Maybe oh, I'll buy oh, you. There a, you go. Maybe I'll buy everybody a painting. Yeah. I'm not sure. But if I am going to spend six point six million dollars on art, I would love. For, now this is where I'm old school, I guess, a little bit. And Ron McLean was talking about this, and Elliot Friedman. They were talking about this on what pro sports leagues are going to do. Because my understanding is that the NBA already has something like this going on. And of course, you know, the leagues are want to get going to want to get in on it because they're going to want to monitor. They want a piece of the pie. And this could be the new face of sports collectibles. And so Ron McLean's holding up his old vintage hockey cards right from the 50s and the 60s and really great cards. Rocket Richard and, you know, Bobby Hall and all these old old stars. And he's holding them in his hands. And part of me was kind of like, why are they not in protective plastic? Like, that was kind of where my mind was going. I digress. And Elliot's talking about how this is the new thing. These digital collector cards where you would own a highlight. For example, a LeBron James slam dunk. It's like described as one of his greatest dunks of all time. The actual highlight, like the video clip. And I don't totally understand it. Actually, I barely understand it. Somebody owns the clip. I, I think it's a way of just introducing scarcity into it. You know what I mean? Like, it, like highlight clips are everywhere and, and leagues around the world have been kind of trying to clamp down on their assets and, and make sure that they protect their licensing rights with different broadcasters and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I guess the flip side to it is that, you know, if you have this sort of attachment to a physical collector's item and what you get is a digital file, you can display it however you want. I mean, if you have $6.5 million to spend, I'm pretty sure you could toss in a projector and projection map a room to display all of your art whenever you want. Yeah. White Dream says it's already being used for sports cards, you guys. Greg just says, um, yeah, it says the NBA is huge into offering NFTs, and, and White Dream's right. Uh, and th- that's how this story first got on my radar. Then I saw this piece in, in Reuters, and I thought, we got to talk about this. Uh, if for no other reason... That we want uh, uh, Sam's looking. I'm just going to tell people what you're doing right now. Are you? You're telling me to like open the show. This well, I'm is, just we okay. We this is so skipped funny. the intro. No, we once, didn't skip it. Literally because we were just chatting so much. So I'm just like, make sure we read the sponsor. But once, read, and but start once, the show. <laughs> 
But once the intro starts, then the show officially starts. This is just people. This is like people just getting their coffee, people settling in. Okay. We're just, we're just, don't worry. Okay. Don't okay. worry. Oh, the yeah. Blood pressure's I'm, coming I'm down on know, this side of the I'm room. still going to talk about Bitcoin well, and we're still going to hear Ayla Brooke and the Soundman again. You're going to hear that beautiful voice of the uh, the Real Talk voiceover artist. Um, I don't mean to oh, the brag, announcer lady. I don't mean to brag, but I slept with the announcer lady again last night. Um, so you're going to hear that in just a second. Robin says, you guys, art investment is a tax shelter and a way to, to hide money. It actually has nothing to do with the actual works of art. Robin's right to a certain degree. It depends on what, what level you're at. I happen to know some people here in Edmonton, won't name names, but they have warehouses of art that is just like categorized and stored oftentimes in climate controlled warehouses. And these are pieces that would like we would be I would be too scared to hang them in my house. They're so beautiful and so valuable. There's a, there's an incredible uh, it's either one or two episodes on revisionist history, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, where he talks about how, you know, the vast majority of art collections in the world that are owned by like giant institutional museums are literally just kept in warehouses. Like most of it never sees the light of day and they purchase it just to own it. And it's just like it's mind blowing dissecting some of the stuff that, like I said, is, is just it's hidden. It's in warehouses. It's in crates. Some of it they don't have like written records of where yeah. everything is stored. Amazing. Air I said, Straya says to be actually serious for a second. Oh, all right. Says to be actually serious for a second. Brushing your kids baby teeth is about helping them form that habit. Don't have to tell me. Wyatt and I get into a little something called brushing hero. The parents. Uh, Sam, you may enjoy it yourself. It you, you you load up the app called Brushing Hero. I'm not getting paid for this. This is just this is just me sharing with you. And the app it uses your camera on your phone and it superimposes like a knight's helmet on you. Oh, that's cool. And the more that you brush and the more now my concern, actually not a dentist, but my concern is that it, it causes Wyatt to brush so vigorously because he's like fighting monsters and dragons and it's super exciting and he gets points. He gets gold coins the more he brushes, but he starts brushing like super hard. And the, 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 my dentist has always been like brush soft on the gums. Brush soft on the gum. Is he slinging toothpaste all over oh, the after Molly's doing? Yeah. Tooth, he's like hammering down it. I got someone's going to turn that into a gif. What I just did. I better be careful. Uh, that someone's going to be Sam Brooks. Yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, brushing here. I highly recommend it. Uh, this is also kind of funny. Les Landry is chiming in. He's on the chat this morning. Boy, did Les make an impression on Real Talkers yesterday. And by the way, Real Talkers who took Les's GoFundMe. From I, I I didn't check in exactly, but you shot that thing to the stratosphere. Holy he came man. on. It was at eight hundred bucks. And then he sent me a note yesterday afternoon and said, hey, take a look at the GoFundMe is like thirty five hundred bucks or something. Yeah. So real talkers stepped up in a big way to fight poverty, which is great. And I saw a, a con a comment here. Where was it? I lost it. But someone on the live chat, something like yesterday, we're doing what we can to to address poverty. And to, yeah, Chris Sturwald here says uh, drummer, by the way, from Ayla Brook and the Soundman says, says, what is it? Yesterday, we're fighting poverty. And here we are today talking about six and a half million dollar paintings. No kidding. Hey, Sam, did you know that this show is proudly presented each and every day, whether it's out of the gates or 20 minutes in by our friends at Bitcoin? Well, I was on a call last night with a buddy and, and he's trying to make sense of crypto. He wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to miss the bus. But then he also thinks, well, what if it's not right for me? And he says, he says, my dad thinks that I'm just out to lunch, even looking at this stuff. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know how to answer. I didn't know. I have some questions. I said, well, buddy, Bitcoin. Well, the whole team's right there ready to answer your questions. If you get to a point where it's right for you to invest in crypto, it's the easiest way to do it. 
The best thing about them is their personal relationships. As a matter of fact, I'm masking up and heading there tomorrow to get them to handle some business for me. That's the best part about this. When you're looking for answers, you'll find them at Bitcoin Well. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. All right. We're going to be talking. We'll get to the news headlines in about 10 minutes, and then we're going to be talking about these NFTs. This is fascinating stuff. We're also going to be talking to an Alberta pastor. Uh, As a matter of fact, out of Sherwood Park, He knows the pastoral team at Grace Life Church. This is the church that continues to to be packed to the rafters uh, week in and week out every single Sunday, plus through the week. They've got the prayer meetings on Tuesday. They gather on Friday, like hundreds and hundreds of people at 100 percent capacity of fire code. Uh, It's enraging a lot of people. Quite frankly, it's inspiring some people. Uh, You've got law enforcement tied up there every single Sunday. Reporters were uh, counting five or six cop cruisers there last Sunday. That's five or six cop cruisers that aren't elsewhere uh, doing their work. Pastor James Coates in jail. Uh, we're going to check in with a pastor out of Sherwood Park Alliance Church, Greg Hohalter, who's going to talk to us about gathering in community and fellowship and his take on the assertions from the pastoral team at Grace Life that, well, churches that don't gather in person are being unfaithful. That was a hand grenade, if I've ever seen one. Pastor Hohalter joining us around, uh, I guess, in about uh, 40 minutes from now, 45 minutes from now. And then Mike Cameron's going to check in. He's the author of Becoming a Better Man. Mike's dealt with tragedy, unimaginable tragedy in his life. His, his girlfriend was actually murdered by her former partner who then took his own life. And, and Mike, to honor her, and I'll let him tell his story. I won't tell it to you. Uh, but Mike has, has basically dedicated his life to addressing this and has made huge commitments and is doing an unbelievable job. His book, Becoming a Better Man, Mike Cameron will join us in about uh, an hour and 10 minutes from now. You know, people send us emails every single day. We get hundreds of them. We get we get, you know, more than easily more than a thousand emails from real talkers each and every week, which is remarkable. And we're grateful for for every one of them. And I wanted to get to some that we received here. This one from Michael yesterday after we talked to Les Landry. He says, you know, I really appreciated listening to Les's conversation. Some of you would have seen Michael's comment in the live chat and and not realized his background. I I saw he did get pounced on a little bit for this. Michael followed up. He said, I said, I posted a message in your live chat asking, you know, what does Les think of people that are defrauding these support programs like Aish? Um, If you're outside of Alberta, that's the assured income for the severely handicapped and Alberta works. I asked what, what he thinks of people defrauding these services. And he says, and viewers Michael says, viewers got all mad at me. He says, but here's the thing. I'm an insider. He says, I work in community and social services. And one of the biggest tasks that we have every day is dealing with people who report false information, clients that are working under the table, people that are living outside of the province, still receiving supports through Alberta Works. He says, we have a program to attempt to claw these funds back. And I know that frontline workers get a bad view from clients, but Michael says, we see so much on a daily basis, we forget sometimes how clients are actually in need. In other words, it kind of impacts their perspective. He says, we get, we get yelled at, we get screamed at, we get pushed around physically so much that when somebody is in need, oftentimes, to be honest, says Michael, we may not actually see it. And he says, and it was refreshing to see a kind man like Les on your show. That from Michael, I really appreciate that. 
Can you call up that photo of Janice Irwin's office? Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, I'll describe it for you. Janice Irwin, a, a popular MLA out of Edmonton Highlands, Norwood, for the official opposition, the NDP. Uh, she was on the show a while ago. You remember that uh, sort of going back and forth with Vitor Marciano, uh, former Wild Rose senior advisor on, on health care premiums. It was a great conversation, that meet in the middle Monday that we had. Well, her office was was vandalized with Antifa liars spray painted across her window. And Janice, as she does, uh, responded in, in classy and magnificent fashion, you know, wishing a good morning to everybody who continues to denounce racism and white supremacy. She says no matter how angry or uncomfortable it makes some people. Well, it prompted Alana to reach out and Alana posts that photo. She was grateful to see it on Real Talk, but she goes, how is this not like the top story on every social media feed? How is it not the top story on every local news platform? She says this vandalism is so much bigger than a can of spray paint and a few words. She says this this is party politics BS. And the fact that it's not being loudly and immediately denounced by the premier and his government, she says, well, this is right up there with Donald Trump and his we love you. You're very special statement on January 6th. Alana says, I know we're living through a pandemic and physical distancing is essential, but how are the level headed rule following science believing anti white supremacy Albertans not at the legislature grounds banging on the door demanding to be heard? She says our premier has been stoking the flames here with ultra conservative values and at an extreme white supremacy. The people should be furious. We should be livid. Alana says language matters and the premier's language has been very coded to his far right base for for frankly years. She says Jason Kenney may not be holding the can of spray paint, but he sure has paint on his hands. That from Alana. She says, now, I know you could make the argument, Ryan, to not give these people a platform, not share this message, not boost its reach. But I would argue that the silence of the Alberta government on this speaks volumes. She says, quite frankly, all of the government's half-assed remarks of all the race-based incidents of the last few weeks, and there have been a number, hijabi women being attacked in Edmonton. We've got tiki torches proudly being shown on display across the province, more rallies planned. She says this only leads Albertans to come to their own conclusions. This kind of ties into what Todd Babiak was talking about yesterday in branding Alberta. Yeah, for sure. Lana goes on to say, my conclusion is that being a racist comes across, quite frankly, is okay in the eyes of the governing party. You know, I mean, hate speech, hate fueled violence seems to get a green light from the premier. Am I wrong in jumping to this conclusion, says Alana? She says, I'd love to be proven wrong. Says, I expect better of my leader, regardless of party platform values. I expect my elected officials to be the first voice out in front of a camera for every single one of these events. I expect them to be loud and clear in their denouncement of this behavior. I expect investigations and charges, and I expect my elected leaders to be trash talk spitting mad about this. Nice reference, Alana. Says the fact that Premier's not out in front of this event or the attacks on hijabi women or the white supremacist protests with the tiki torches says to me that he's okay with this, that he agrees with it, that he even endorses it. Alana says, sincerely, raging fucking mad that from alana appreciate that you know i I bet some people will say you really think that politicians you 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 think politicians aren't you really think politicians have to get up and, and get in front of microphones and comment on every single one of these 
You honestly think that every single incident requires a comment from the premier or from the government or from MLAs or mayors every single time, every single time you think they need to comment on it? You know, what it reminds me, it reminds me every single time that there's a horrific act of of terror, of violence perpetrated by in particular extremist uh, or followers or those that would interpret the Muslim faith in an extreme sense. Extremists, terrorists, we'll call them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's an, you know, uh, I'm going to invoke uh, Amarji Sohi when we had him on last week uh, chatting with Paula Simons, how he said, you know, it concerns me because it's a trend. But here's the thing. People will reach out and say, I didn't hear from the National Council of Canadian Muslims on this. Do they condone it? Do they endorse it? I didn't hear from the folks at Al Rashid Mosque about this. Not a comment. Where's the comment? And you might sit there and say, you expect you, you want local ma- mosques or, or Muslim leaders to comment on every single act of terror? Well, if that is the expectation, then we should expect the same across the board. Absolutely. Regardless of scenario, politics, creed, religion. Right. I mean, if that's the expectation, then that should be the expectation. I think in positions of political leadership, I think Alana's bang on with that. I think her expectations fair. And I love this one from Alexia. Alexia wrote in to say, this is, this is encouraging. You know what jumped out at me on this email? Sam, I bet you saw it too in your inbox. The subject line said, future Albertan. I went right on. Oh, yes. I loved this email. She says, I, I just tuned in to today's show from Ontario. Thank you, Alexia. And good morning to our friends in Ontario. Says Todd Babiak's thoughts on why we are drawn to Alberta encapsulated everything I've been feeling and thinking since last October when I visited your province and fell in love with the people and fell in love with the place. I say your province, Ryan, but soon I will also be in Albertan. I'm planning to pack up my car and head there with not even a job lined up. My fingers are crossed. The budget was just tabled there, and it seems like I'm headed for ground zero. My friends and family in Toronto think I'm nuts, especially considering all the opportunity, in quotes, that exists in Ontario's diversified economy. But like Todd Babiak said, there's a romantic element to why we find ourselves where we are or where we want to be. I know I'm taking a risk by moving west, but I'm taking even more of a risk by remaining stagnant. Living near the Canadian Rockies is worth whatever risk there may be. Being part of the new chapter being written in Alberta is worth the risk. Having hope for a new beginning is worth the risk. And hearing all this echoed in your inver- in your interview with Todd Babiak confirmed to me that I am making the right decision. Wish me luck and see you soon. That from Alexia. How great is that? That made my day. Welcome to Alberta, Alexia. Welcome to Alberta. I, I extended. We'll, we'll roll out the red carpet. Not our red carpet. No. Because that's fine. You keep that to yourself. That's very expensive. It's fine fabric. We can't have everybody walking <laughs> all over this red carpet. But the red carpet I used to use, we'll roll it out for Alexia when she that, arrives. That spare that? one that's rolled up in your garage, that one? Yeah. We don't want to chase her away. We better stop with this, with this malarkey, as President Biden would say. Hey, it's just a couple of days until Friesen Brothers opens the doors on their 15th Alberta location. That's right, right here in the capital city, just off the Anthony Hende at Rabbit Hill Road. It's going to blow your mind. I was there earlier this week, got a bit of a sneak peek. It's it's like all I can say is when you walk in, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't want to reveal all the secrets, but they got a smash burger station. Craft beer. Every time I talk, I look at Sam and I say they got a crap. They got craft beer taps. Yeah, uh, like phenomenal. And smash burgers and a smoker and fresh sourdough. Smokers, like- fresh sour. You know what the best part about it was? They had their sandwich team. Like you do sandwiches made to order. They had the team doing the training when I was walking through. 
And so you they're got like, they're, samples, didn't you? And they were like, Jespo. I was like, what's up, guys? They're like, you want a sandwich? I was like, what do you think? I said, what's the house recommendation? He says, Montreal smoked turkey. I said, Ooh. I said, well, hook me up. And they did. And it blew my mind. Friesen Brothers for more than 60 years, Alberta grown, Alberta owned. As is the team, proudly based of Alberta, based out of Alberta for more than 40 years at Westworld Computers, uh, had a note from a real talker yesterday that said, what was that deal? They said, where do you get all the, where, where, that, where you're talking about all the refurbished gear? They're looking to upgrade their equipment, but they don't have the budget, as a lot of people don't right now. It's been a tough year. It's been a hell of a year. You don't have a budget for all new gear at Westworld, from the, from the, the Apple Watches and the iPhones all the way up to the MacBook Pros and the iMacs and everything else. They've got the gently used stuff. Software is reloaded. They're re-warrantied. They've got you covered, no matter your budget, at Westworld Computers. Let's take a look at what's making headlines. Every day we've got a, a new update for you on the vaccine front, an expert panel that's advising governments in the United States and Canada on vaccines, determining that the second doses of COVID-19 can be given up to four months after the first. Now, there's implications for B.C. and Alberta here. Uh, this is the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, the NACI, uh, previously supported extending this interval to no more than six weeks. You know, people need these two shots, right? And they thought that maybe this would open the door if they could stretch it for more people to get their first shots while supplies are still limited. And so they're not recommending an interval of more than four months between shots. But in B.C., Bonnie Henry, their provincial health officer, says that they're going to move forward. Alberta's health minister, Tyler Shandro, says Alberta also considering stretching the wait time between doses. Currently, Alberta administers the second doses within 42 days, within six weeks of the first dose. The health minister saying that Alberta's getting advice comparable to B.C. Quote, we've received from physicians and our provincial vaccine advisory committee advice made up physicians, public health folks. We are considering what B.C. has done. And how about this? Uh, tomorrow, March 4th, information provided by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security warns of extreme chatter on these message boards they're keeping an eye on. They say it's increasing. Uh, including members of this three percenters extremist group discussing possible plots against the Capitol tomorrow on March 4th. Law enforcement confirming that security will be increased. Acting House Sergeant at Arms at the Capitol, Timothy Blodgett, telling uh, members in a memo, this is reported by CNN, that while they are enhancing security out of precaution, they have no indication that groups will travel to Washington, D.C. to protect or commit uh, protest or commit acts of violence now, why March 4th? Well, QAnon conspiracy theorists believe that former President Trump will be inaugurated tomorrow on March 4th, returning him to the presidency. Why? Uh, between 1793 and 1933, inauguration often fell on March 4th or a date close to that. Sam, you look like you're trying to take the story seriously. I think trying to take this story seriously is exactly... I the extremist threat should be taken seriously. That's the part because, I'm feeling. It's like there's no laughing matter about well, what happened January 6th. we've 6. seen this happen already. But yeah. at the same time, like, I I don't know. QAnon stuff just makes me eye roll. Um, yep. 
we're working. <laughs> I love when you end your take. Yup. Uh, we're we're working on a, a conversation. We're going to be talking about conspiracy theories. We've got a great segment coming up uh, either later this week or into early next week. We're working on lining up the author. Uh, I don't want to jinx it. She's based out of Paris. And so there are some things that we're working on details wise, but we will be focusing on conspiracy theories in days to come. I should announce quickly. Uh, I got ahead of myself and I announced that our solar panel would be convening this Friday for the traditional Friday Real Talk Roundtable from 9 to 10 Mountain Time, 11 to noon Eastern. Um, turns out that there's there's one guest that we really, really, really want on that panel. They're unavailable, unfortunately. So we're going to bump it to next Friday. So I wanted to let Real Talkers know next Friday, that'll be, I think, what is that? The fifth? So it'll be the 12th of March uh, will be our solar panel where you'll never guess what we're going to be talking about. Looking forward to it. Green energy. I think it's going to be a great conversation. So that's coming up. Let's get into this fascinating story. Okay, so Elizabeth Howcroft does a great job, a financial journalist uh, at Reuters uh, based out of London. She's going to be joining us in a few moments. Um, She reports on global financial markets, and we're going to be talking about the trend of these NFTs. It's been really interesting to see real talkers chiming in. Many of you have a a much greater understanding of this than we do on these these digital assets, these digital art assets. Um, You know, where are people buying them? Where is this going to go? How does blockchain fit into it? I think that this is going to be a great conversation. Also wanted to get to to some more of your emails here, though, and some of them are really, really, I mean, you tie into stuff that that we realize as we have these conversations that oftentimes it takes, you know, hours or even days or weeks for us to digest what we're getting into. And I wanted to read this email. This is a great one from Barbara. And Barbara touches in on on words and the words we use and the power of words. And, And you remember that I had read an email a few days ago from a listener. And she wrote in to say, Ryan, you know, you're using this phrase or you're using this word. And, and inadvertently, she says, I'm sure it must be inadvertent, but, you know, you're offending uh, members of, 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 you know, the community of people living with disabilities and you're, you know, sort of denigrating them. And it was actually quite a, I thought, relatively speaking, a pretty kind hearted and well-meaning email. It was great. And it led to a great conversation. And, and we had the two Adams write in emails yesterday on it. And this one from Barbara, I wanted to get into. She says, She says, sometimes I catch the shows a little bit later on the podcast. Barbara, thank you. She says, I really did enjoy the frank, open and honest conversation on the use of words like spaz. She says, I have noticed you use it in past Ryan. I have. And and, and to be honest, I, I didn't make the connection myself that sparked the comments that you read. But I do agree with the viewer. For me, I, I, I found it to be a term that was used by younger people. And as an adult, it's a term that I've grown away from. But that doesn't mean that I've grown away from all of my youthful words and language. You know, Barbara says, even at 65, sometimes my kids will give me a bit of a look. And she says, another reason for my lack of attention to your use of that word or the phrase is I like you. So it kind of slides off, says Barbara. She says, your other listener also clearly likes you and cares enough about you to share her thoughts and provide a good reason to not use words like that. And I'm so happy that you opened this up as a topic for discussion because I'm so disheartened by people that will latch on to something like this and say, oh, here we go. You know, here we go again. More of the politically correct police or the political speech police. But the reality is, says Barbara, and I can assure you that that she's not the only person who feels or thinks that way says I'm glad she put herself out there and felt safe enough to say something and and to do so so respectfully 
Barbara says, I know that you probably agree with me on all this, Ryan. I'm just expressing my gratitude for her. And Barbara, I do agree. She says, you know, something I learned some time ago, and that is that if, if one person makes a statement, it's often said that up to a thousand other people might be thinking the same thing. She says, I remember a number of years ago when recycling was becoming more than just an idea. And I saw a TV commercial with, with like food. There was food. You could just put it in a bag and then you could like boil it or throw it in the microwave, empty the bowl, toss the bag in the garbage. And Barbara says, maybe I was in a bit of a feisty mood that day, but I wrote to the company asking how they could in good conscious market tossing plastic in the garbage and not showing recycling as an option. And she says, and I'm sure I wasn't alone in noticing this because I never saw that commercial again. Now that I have better knowledge about recycling, I realize the package should be cleaned first. Another step to impede the convenience of the product. But my point is, I felt like my words on that topic mattered. Barbara says, we've all grown up using words that are so comfortable to us, not realizing that there's a quiet audience where we go that's possibly hurting Changing our words has, in my opinion, nothing to do with being politically correct, but everything to do with respecting individuals who have a different understanding of or response to words because of the impact it has on them. While many believe it's a burden tagging political correctness as a bad thing, I think it's great. And I think we're evolving into better people who care about others as we make these small tweaks with our words and our thoughts. This is great. She says, I feel very strongly that you're okay with making a change based on sensitivity of messages you receive. And I appreciate you being able to use yourself as an example when garnering feedback from your audience. She goes on to say, I've enjoyed many of your interviews and I've ordered several books from authors I've heard on the show. She says, I'm so happy to have real talk to tune into every day. That from Barbara. What an amazing email. I totally appreciate that, Barbara. Thanks very much. Is Elizabeth ready to rock and roll from London? I'm so jazzed that she's agreed to take the time to talk to us here. Uh, Elizabeth reports on global financial markets, and she covered a story uh, that I haven't been able to stop thinking about from the moment that I saw it at Reuters.com, how a 10-second video clip sold for $6.6 million. Elizabeth, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much for having me. I, I suppose we're, we're getting into your late afternoon. We're getting into your evening. So it means even that much more. How much did you know about NFTs uh, before? And I'm going to say full disclosure, I am at a very, very entry level of understanding on all this stuff. How much did you know about NFTs before you started digging into this story about Pablo Rodriguez Frey? I didn't know anything about NFTs at all um, before I came across them researching and, and decided that it was worth writing about them okay perfect so you so you're a professional storyteller so why don't i ask you in in your best lay person's language how, how would you lay the groundwork for our conversation when we're talking about nfts we're talking is it non-fungible token is that how you say it yeah yeah i think so so i guess the first thing to do is to explain what an nft is um so an nft as you say stands for non-fungible token and it's basically a kind of digital asset um, that's key features that it's backed up by blockchain in a way where blockchain verifies who the owner is and that each one is unique. So unlike your average sort of object online, which could be copied and pasted or reproduced, these ones have a sort of uh, verification system that, that um, 
makes it publicly known who the owner is and, and what the original NFT is. And the 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 point of this, I mean, obviously, for example, for for the art collector that you feature in this piece, the, the point could very well be. Uh, you know, 10 times uh, or no, 100 times return on your investment in the course of several months. Um, so there's that point. Is the other point from a collector's standpoint uh, exclusivity? Is that it? Owning something that nobody else has? Is that the idea? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, so yeah, we, we had in the story this example of an art collector investing in an NFT in the form of digital art. Um, but the market is really varied and some NFTs are more like collectible items. So the sort of people who are buying them are hobbyists and collectors who want to buy things to do with their passion. Um, and yeah, definitely the selling point is the idea that they will be, they will have the public status of being the only owner of that item. So how did this art story get on your radar? Did you, were you following it back in October of 2020 uh, when, when this man spent all, you know, $67,000 on this 10 second video clip? Is that when you first started paying attention? Um, no, I wasn't actually following the story as far back as that. And in fact, I'd been looking into NFTs as a whole for a while um, and, and already had a, a draft story written when I came across the example of this video clip uh, that went for 6.6 million. And, and when I saw that, I thought, OK, that, that's the headline. That's what we'll lead with. It's unbelievable. So this video and we're seeing it here, it's by the digital artist Beeple, uh, whose real name is Mike Winkleman. Um, and here's where I get a bit out of my depth, to be honest with you. I, I, I'm, I'm referencing your great reporting here at Reuters.com. Um, it's authenticated by blockchain, which essentially serves, as you write, as the digital signature to certify who owns it and that it's the original work. It's this digital asset. I mean, the obvious thing for me is I'm looking at this and I'm going, it's cool. It looks neat. But but here we are. We're watching it and we don't own it. And I think if I'm going to spend six million bucks on a painting or a piece of art, I'd love to hang it on the wall. Is it, is it do we have to totally rethink our entire understanding of enjoying art or enjoying sports or high, people are saying this is where sports cards could go? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not for me to make a judgment on on how much impact this this market will have, but it's certainly the case that enthusiasts, uh, people who are massive fans of this idea, think that this does represent the future of ownership. Um, they're looking at the amount of time we spend online um, and thinking, well, if you want to splash out on something, why would you buy something like, say, a, a gold watch um, that none of your friends will see, that you're just going to wear behind your computer, when you could buy an item that, that will exist in your online life and, and that your online friends can see and it will sort of enrich um, your your life within the internet and the online worlds you inhabit. Um, so certainly there are enthusiasts who really think this is the future of ownership and, and this is how people will have assets um, in the future. And if that's the case, then getting in early, um, as is often the case with new trends and investments, uh, will be key. Where else are you seeing this play out? I mean, we, the sports world is one great example but it goes way beyond that i would imagine we're just i mean if even if we use our imagination as best we can we'd probably only be scratching the surface right now yeah absolutely i mean that's one of the reasons this was a really interesting story to report um because it really does just like set your imagination going um so yeah you mentioned um sports cards and collectibles there's a site called nba top shot uh, which we mentioned in the piece where people can trade uh, video highlights of particular key moments um, in basketball games. Um, so that's one area. Uh, another area that uh, people are buying NFTs in 
is uh, patches of land within virtual world environments. And that's a really interesting one because people think that um, as we sort of head towards, I mean, at least some people believe we're heading towards a world where we'll increasingly spend our time in sort of virtual environments, maybe even facilitated by virtual reality. The idea that you could own maybe a patch of land within that that's backed up by an NFT is very appealing to some people. This is fascinating stuff. I mean, even and this is I mean, your your report at Reuters, it 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 kind of uh, this is a compliment. It dumbs it down enough that I'm able to start to understand it. But I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how investing in in land in a virtual environment would make sense. But that's because that's not our go to thing yet. Right. But if you were talking to people about staking out claims, for example, the value, I mean, you look at companies, I mean, if you owned Nike.com or Apple.com, um, you know, and, and wanted to negotiate with a company to sell that as an example of placeholding something, I mean, those would be worth millions of dollars right now. That's maybe the best example I can come up with right now. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, and in fact, one of the things that people are buying as NFTs are um, cryptocurrency wallet address names. So that's almost exactly parallel to the sort of scramble for domain names that there was in the early days of the internet. Have you been able to look into whether or not this is the type of landscape where fraudsters can run rampant? I think oftentimes when there's environments where people barely understand what they're doing, there are those that have a great deal of understanding that are that are capitalizing on that. Have you been looking into it? So I wouldn't want to go too far beyond the scope of what, what I have looked into, and I'm by no means an expert. Um, but it's certainly true to say that any market where there's a lot of hype and a lot of excitement, um, and a lot of speculative investment um, will also come with warnings that there are there are risks, um, not least of uh, people putting a lot of money into something that maybe they don't understand too well. Have you, through the course of your journalistic exercise, have you been kicking around and, and starting to flirt with the idea of maybe getting in on this yourself? I mean, if you, do you ever consider crossing that bridge where you go, this is a train I don't want to miss? <laughs> no, I wasn't tempted, to be honest, um, not least because, you know, it's very important to stay objective on things. And I think if I had a financial stake in it, then, uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't be quite right for Reuters. Yeah, you start writing about how you think it's the new trend and everybody should get in on it. And then your personal assets start to rise. There may be a bit of a conflict yeah. there. Have you spent any time looking into OpenSea? This is the, the I only know this because of you wrote your, your report, uh, this marketplace for NFTs. Have you spent any time kicking around on there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a look at the marketplace and that's really where I learned about the different kind of NFTs that exist. Um, yeah, I mean, OpenSea has seen incredible growth. Um, so, yeah, for, for your listeners, this is a, a kind of marketplace um, for buying and selling, trading NFTs um, of all different sorts. And a year ago, they were seeing monthly sales volume of around $1.5 million. Um, and then it started to pick up over the autumn of last year. Um, by January, it went up to $8 million um, in monthly sales, which was, was quite a step up. And that was the sort of time that I started looking into it. Um, from $8 million in January, it then went to around $90 million in February. So it really just exploded um, the amount of interest and sales and transactions that were going on. Fascinating stuff. How much of your work centers around studying crypto? Are you, are you paying keen attention to that trend as well? Is that factoring into a lot of your journalism these days? Well, I'm not specifically a crypto reporter. We have some amazing uh, crypto reporters on our team, but it's not specifically my beat. But certainly anyone who's a markets or financial journalist at the moment uh, can't not notice uh, what's going on there. 
Yeah. Is there a trend within crypto that you're keeping a keen eye on? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking you to, to, to give us some insight into your journalistic process and give us a hint on what you might be writing about next. But is there something, a particular storyline you're keeping an eye on? It's probably not my place to call what the next trends or stories are in that area. But um, I'd certainly say watch out for everything writers writes because it's, you know, always the most reliable and accurate and interesting articles. Yeah. Love it. Great plug to wrap it up, Elizabeth. I'm really, (laughs) I'm really grateful that you've uh, made the time to talk to us and you're absolutely right. Reuters reputation is bulletproof around the world. Um, It's why we were really grateful that, that you took the time to check in from England this morning. Thanks for joining us here on real talk. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you got it. You can read Elizabeth Howcroft's great piece Again, at Reuters.com, here it is. I'm just taking a look at it right now. I'll show it to you, Sam. This is how a 10-second video clip sold for $6.6 million. A fascinating story. And talk about turnaround, like really quick turnaround on an investment. This guy purchases this 10-second video clip in October for sixty-seven grand, which is a ton of dough, and then flips it for $6.5 million five months later. Hello. There we go. I'm curious if the, uh, you know, how much do you think the subject matter matters on this one? Like, do you think it would be worth the same amount if Trump had won the election? We're back to sort of, you know, like the last four years again, or it's because it is this kind of uh, satirical art piece critiquing the former reality show star that used to inherit the, or uh, inhabit the White House. Um, do you think that that has a big, uh, big effect on the price of this? I'm you know? not even I'm not even I can't even answer your questions. I don't even want to answer your questions because I don't know enough to have an opinion yeah. on this. I'm fascinated by it. I'm trying to keep up. I mean, this is this is not going to turn into another plug for Bitcoin. Well, except for the fact that like the the biggest reason why I think that the service they provide is so great because there's no dumb question. You can yeah. come and say, you can, you can walk in or you can call them, send them an email and say like, I literally don't understand anything about this. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what blockchain is. I don't understand what a hardware wallet is. I don't understand. Like, I mean, like I've got one here. Hang on a second. So I've got this thing and I'm just figuring out how to use it. Right. And, uh, it's somewhere in my bag anyway, <laughs> but it's like, I'm still, good radio. I'm still, I'm still figuring out, like how this even works and what it even is. And it just looks like a USB stick, right? Mm -hmm. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see it right now. It just looks like a USB stick, right? Now there's not actual, it's got this cool little digital readout on it and everything. Now my understanding is it's not actually like there's not Bitcoin stored on this, but this is the key that allows me to access the bit chain, the Bitcoin that's on the blockchain, right? Kinda like, uh, did I kind of so so this is I think so. so yeah see so experts right now <laughs> even people that are watching right now people that are listening to the podcast later are going to go Jesperson yeah. you should not be you don't even know what you're talking about and you're right but I'm trying to all I'm trying to do is is keep up and understand because if this is the next big thing and a lot of people think it is as we see markets go wild and as we see uh federal reserve you know the federal reserve in the states and the and canadian mint and, and governments just print money print like billions trillions of dollars inflation's a thing you know banks i think underserve people in a lot of different ways more and more people are, are getting into this and i think we're just scratching the surface of it and so to, to get back to your question about these nfts and and the ownership of these assets 
I think that some people are going to want to get in the game just to be in the game. Like, just to feel like they're part of the movement. Yeah, I, I think um, what we see with a lot of trends is, like, I'm, I'm betting, like, with crypto, there's going to be some, you know, some people that are, like, kind of early adopters to any technology. They're just sort of like, you know, I need my hands on some of this. It could be something valuable. It could be a total flop. But, like, you know, there's there's people like like our friends from Bitcoin, well, like our friend Adam O'Brien that, that you describe as a futurist that is just yeah. sort of in this this uh, this space of if there's a new trend, I need to be up on it. I need to understand which direction the world is moving in. Yeah. You know, this this particular piece, it almost feels like a digital Banksy to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it kind of has that, like, both in the, the subject matter, the, the spontaneity of it, the fact that it's this social critique. But um, you know that Banksy will find a way to Banksy NFTs. Absolutely, he will. Or like, she will. We don't know who Banksy is. We don't is. know who Banksy is. Um, but a brilliant, whoever it is, absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm taking a look. Uh, some random guy says, never, ever lose that digital wallet, Ryan. True. But if you do lose the digital wallet, then you've got this list of words, these random words. Let me read you my list. No, I'm just kidding. But the, the list of words is what you can't lose. It's like 25 random words that, that you are assigned, like totally random words, like, you know, painting, headphone, candle, genius, you know, all these all these words. And if you lose your digital wallet, you can get a new digital wallet. Like it's just it's just like a cheap piece of whatever it is. You know, plastic or whatever. You plug it in, then you use all. You put it, punch in all the words, and then you ha- restore access to your blockchain. If you lose your digital wallet and your words, you're screwed. And we've heard nightmare stories like this of people that are missing millions of dollars worth of crypto because whatever happened with an old hard drive, or they lost access to it, or they can't. I mean, these are nightmare stories of people. You're hearing more and more stories of people that are saying, "I bought like I spent a thousand bucks on Bitcoin when it was like pennies." You know, because I just wanted to get in. I didn't know what it was. I forgot I had it. All of a sudden, I realized Bitcoin's at like 50 or 60 grand. Oh, my gosh. I have millions, and I can't remember how to access it. And these are the stories you just go, oh. We asked Adam O'Brien about that, CEO of Bitcoin well a while back. He'll be back on the show. Joanne and, and others are talking about how this could be a huge opportunity for artists. Like, Abreka says, I love this. It's like ownership with the intent of sharing as opposed to ownership with the purpose of withholding. And the implications for art are outstanding. Joanne says this could really help artists make a living on their art and receive some amazing exposure. It's kind of like, in a way, it's, it's like a digital Etsy, in a way. Like I'm looking here, but but I'm I'm looking on the website here, Sam, at OpenSea, OpenSea.io, and look at this. Like I, this is a serious question. I feel really silly asking this, but you see these Bitcoin high tops that are for sale. Like, is this even? I mean, I'm asking a serious question. Is it the picture, or do you get actual shoes? I think it's, it's be, just the picture. It's just the picture. It's just art. Yeah. That's the point, right? Like, you don't get the actual shoes. I think you can take those shoes to whatever sneaker manufacturer you like, and I'm they can sure probably make them for you. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. All right, let's focus. We're going to be talking about this uh, Grace Life Church in just a moment. The, the church that is defying public health orders each and every Sunday, packing the church to the rafters. Police are there. RCMP have been there the last number of Sundays in a row. Pastor sitting in jail because he refuses to comply with the order to basically respect public health guidelines 15 percent of their congregation he says i'm not going to do it we're going to talk about that in just a second right now i wanted to remind you that the team at grand dog essentials wants you to know that your dog 
Your dog right now may be, well, you may be not getting the most out of the meals you're feeding your dog, and it could have real impacts on your dog's health. That's why they've introduced these three new supplements. Now, these products are for all dogs, whether you're feeding raw or kibble. They've got a daily probiotic for healthy dogs that will protect their immune system. They've got digestive enzymes for dogs that have a hard time digesting their food. And then they've got this green-lipped muscle oil. They say move over fish oil. There's a new kid in town. This is this muscle oil free of heavy metals and toxins loaded with the immune-boosting omega-3. Really good for joint health, the anti-inflammatory angle of this. If you have an older dog like we do, that's a real consideration. You can find them online. The Grand Dog team loves to talk about what they do. They love to find a perfect solution for you. Oh, yeah. And by the way, they deliver right to your door. All you need to do is check them out. All their social media, their Instagram's great. You can check them out online and make sure you use the promo code REALTALK. If you use the promo code REALTALK uh, at granddog.ca, they're going to give you 10% off your first time order, which is a great opportunity there. The team at Kubi Energy, in addition to providing our positive reflections each and every Monday, also provide, uh, they're providing electricity, natural gas, and internet to Albertans. They've been doing so while supporting nonprofits the entire time. Now, you're going to pay somebody for your natural gas. You're going to pay somebody for your internet, your electricity. Why not make it a builder of real talk at parkpower.ca? That's going to give you 70 bucks. Put 70 bucks back in your pocket, too. That's a pretty great deal. If you go right now and sign up, your first bill, whether it's residential or commercial, is going to have 70 bucks taken right off the top if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. I'm grateful that our next guest has agreed to join us. He is the lead pastor at Sherwood Park Alliance Church. He's been there for more than a decade. Also serves the community as a volunteer chaplain for Strathcona County Emergency Services. That's the Strathcona Fire Department. Married with two grown kids, one in Montreal, one in Dublin, Ireland. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the program Pastor Greg Holhalter. Pastor, thanks for being here today. You're welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. This Grace Life Church, not your church, I want to be very clear, uh, has has been featured, let me say, in news coverage of the past number of weeks as, as hundreds and hundreds of people continue to attend defying public health orders. This is in your neck of the woods. And I would imagine you probably know a lot of people at that church, including the pastoral team. How have you been processing what you've been seeing? Well, first of all, actually, it's not really in our neck of the woods. We're in Sherwood Park, so we're east, and and Grace Life is west. So I. But you're, really you're within don't have... you're within forty five minutes of the you're, you're same same ballpark. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. But no, I'm not. I'm not familiar. I don't. You know, I have a lot of colleagues around um, various churches throughout the province, throughout Western Canada, but I'm not personally acquainted with any of the folks uh, at Grace Life. Okay. How, how have you been processing what you've been seeing? Well, I probably am processing less about grace life and more just about in general, how churches should be reacting to the public health restrictions and the pandemic itself. And again, like I, I would really rather just talk about how we've adapted as opposed to being too critical of others, but I can offer maybe a little bit of contrast and conviction in terms of what's been portrayed in the media here recently. Yeah, well, sure. Well, listen, I mean, this is the this is the show and this is the platform where we just want to have real meaningful conversations. And of course, you yeah. can take it in whatever direction you like. And I'm not trying to turn this into some battle royale while, where, where I've got, you know, uh, ministers looking to, to, to fight each other at the bike racks. That's not my mandate, but I definitely <laughs> want to pick your brain. So why don't sure. we start? Why don't we start with this then? OK, let's look back a year. 
you know, this was right around the time about a year ago where we st- we all right. got a bit of a wake up call on what this was going to start to look like. So what immediate steps? I mean, you've got a congregation of what? Probably like a thousand people. What, what did you do right out of the gates? Well, um, I, I remember all of these dates very well. A year ago, we were actually in California on a typical winter getaway and we landed in Edmonton on March 11th. And the world was just changing rapidly. So it was a Friday the 13th. I'll always remember that morning. We were not asked necessarily or forced to go online only. But that morning, I was on the phone with multiple uh, colleagues from different churches across the province. And a whole bunch of us within our faith tradition, which is the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada, a whole bunch of us, uh, especially those of us who have slightly larger congregations, we all on that morning agreed that we would go online only before we were forced to as a demonstration of our uh, desire to be leaders in the response and to do our part to protect the, the community from the spread of what at that time was just creeping up on us, like you said. Yeah. And and honestly, none of us really had an idea, I don't think, of of the implications it might have. I, I remember I look back to where I was a year ago and it was such a sort of almost a naive understanding of what was about to happen. How did your congregants, I mean, how did your community members respond when you initially said, this is kind of a hard stop. We're going online and online only right away. What I'm grateful for is that within our congregation, there's a tremendous amount of trust from both our board and our congregation toward the pastoral leadership. So I don't recall hardly any pushback initially. There was, there was a very quick response to say, hey, let's pause. We can maybe be part of the solution, not create any more problems. And that's been our posture as a congregation. We're deeply connected in partnership with our with our county, uh, with various agencies throughout the city. So it's a very consistent thing for our community to say, hey, we have a leadership role here to play a little bit in the greater a kingdom community. So no pushback whatsoever to that initial stop. Hmm. I wonder if maybe we have some some uh, some folks that attend your church that are watching this morning, because I've got a Katie Berghofer says, boy, is it ever great to see Pastor Greg, even if it's not in person? How are how are you handling well, Katie? Katie's one of our county commissioners here. So, oh, OK, there you go. Uh, this yeah. is a uh, community is a big thing, though. And this is yeah. um, I mean, listen, I, I'm going to talk about Grace Life. You can touch on it as much as you like or, or avoid it okay. as much as you like. But I mean, a, a big part of their argument is that, you know, this is this is this is the Lord's will that that people gather in community that that, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, that people are are empowered as they need to be to go out and preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, uh, their associate pastor, Jacob Spence, we played some of his sermon last week, last Monday. He said, he said, you know, we're we're commanded to to love our fellow man, and this is what we are doing. This is how we are showing it by equipping people to go out and preach the gospel. He went so far as to call churches that are not gathering in person unfaithful. I mean, how do you respond to that? That's that's quite an interpretation of what the gospel message is. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric within both in this country and in other countries about why churches should absolutely defy authorities and insist on gathering. Those are usually rooted in certain New Testament texts, like the Great Commission, um, which is that charge to go and preach. There's uh, admonitions in um, uh, books like the book of Hebrews that says, don't stop meeting together. Then there's uh, uh, also texts like uh, Acts 2, which is a description of the early church. They continue to meet together daily. And so we grab hold of those and we say, we got to do this. This is central. 
uh, to our calling. At the same time, uh, there's also texts like um, love one another as I have loved you. The great commission uh, goes with the great commandment in Jesus words in Matthew 22 is love your neighbor as yourself. That's all part of the deal. So you got to be careful about pick and choosing the texts that you use to defend your position. And, and probably the most um, used text these days right now when it comes to defying authorities is the obey God rather than men text. That's from Acts chapter five. Interestingly, the person who said that is quoted as saying that is the Apostle Peter, who also says in a letter that he wrote later that we have in our New Testament, Second Peter, he also says, uh, defend, you know, like obey the emperor, like be good citizens. So you have to take the whole when you look at scripture and get your marching orders. And for me and our congregation, we're really uh, galvanized around the central teaching of Jesus. I prefer to use as my great commission, John 13, love one another as I have loved you. And the text that we forget is the verse 35, where it says, by this, others will know. So I believe there's a community watching us around our church and around every church, and they're watching us and watching our behavior and deciding whether or not we really are followers of Jesus by our actions. And if they're loving, I think they're attracted to that. When we look like we insist on our rights above the love of Christ, I think that's a bad look. I think you just hit the nail on the head, Pastor. I, you know, I, that that to me is what I believe to be. I don't know if it's lost on these folks at Grace Life, and and I don't know, you know, I mean, here I'm going to get accused of kind of the both sides thing here, but I bet you that there probably are a bunch of wonderful people that attend that church that oh, want to no do well, that think that they're doing the right thing. Um, in my opinion, this is my opinion. I think that they're getting bad advice, and I think that they're being led astray, and ultimately, I think that they're they're hurting the greater cause. That's my opinion. Are you concerned? And this is not just Grace Life Church. I mean, you can Google examples. People people piled on me. Some folks did a couple of months ago. And I said, why? Why? For the most part, why is it seem to be evangelical Christians that are like leading the charge against these public health regulations? And we interviewed the Reverend Anna Greenwood Lee out of Calgary, who had some great comments on it as well. And and, and people reached out and said, Ryan, you know, you're piling on evangelicals or, you know, this is your anti-Christian bias. Um, and I said, hey, just Google pastor no mask and you'll get like a million you know from all across the united states you'll see all across canada it's been this thing in part not exclusively with evangelical churches but but they're the ones that have the most frequent flare-ups here do you ultimately think that this is creating i don't know if i want to say an image problem but is this creating a problem for the church moving forward massively like that is my if there's anything that keeps me awake at night and occasionally there is um, this is what I'm deeply grieved about. I'm concerned about our reputation in the greater community, especially when you combine it with the last four years. I'm, you know, like, let's call it what it is. Our country here is heavily influenced by the political realities to the nation in the south of us. And over the last four years, uh, I have just seen a greater and greater wedge being built between the church that I have dedicated my life to and the greater community and anything that I can do or we can do to stop that uh, gap from widening. That's what I want to be about. So how have you managed to, uh, I mean, when I think of uh, attending church as a child, 
Um, and, and growing up as a young man, for me, one of the big things was that was the guy. And every every congregation is different, but I think of like people that would gather in the foyer after the fact. We were always the family that was last to leave. We probably drove yeah. the janitors nuts because the fellowship was so key. And I remember pastors and and even you know elders or whatever it was like they would stand by the doors and they would press flesh. They would shake hands with people and they would catch up with people. And in the Catholic tradition, there's there are the greetings and peace be with you and community. Uh, is so huge so how have you managed i mean has has your church taken a hit has your has the effect i mean i'm kind of being a little bit facetious here but has the effectiveness of your preaching taken a bit of a hit because you're you're you know you're limited to the internet um that's a great question back to to the starting point um back even in the fall when we first a fall of last year when we first had to live no wait that was spring the the time is all (laughs) building together but you're not alone uh, i remember (laughs) thank you uh i remember when when there was some opening up again in that first the first time you know we call it around our church we're getting ready at some point here in the near future for relaunch 2.0. Back when we did relaunch 1.0, when some of my my brothers and sisters in the Christian community were saying, how come restaurants can have a certain uh, capacity and openness and churches have to remain closed? One of the things I said at the time to some of my friends is, hey, you got to remember a restaurant experience is, is largely transactional. Like you come in, you place your order, they bring you food, you pay, you eat, you go. A church historically is communal. All to your point, there is handshaking, there is hugging, there is sitting and having deep, intimate conversations, encouragement, pats on the back, joking around, hanging out, like even the sacraments, the partaking of of communion, baptism, that sort of thing. Church is a very communal experience, which is why I think we were properly asked to stand down for a little while, because those are all very high-risk activities. As to whether or not we've taken a hit or we're still as effective, Um, you better ask somebody else about the preaching thing, but I will say this, like um, on the preaching side of it, if you're just looking for message content, uh, I've had a lot of people tell me that when it comes to just listening to the message or the homily, that the digital side of that, the digital experience of that is actually pretty great. And some people prefer it. Uh, My wife loves watching church from in her pajamas and and being able to really dial in on on teaching, even when it's me, sometimes she actually does that. Um, But you can really focus, you can pause, you can have a conversation. You can't really do that in the church environment, but the other side of the, the communal side of church, that's what we're missing for sure. And that, that I wouldn't say we've taken a hit. We've just learned to find other ways to make that connection as opposed to just having it on the property on Saturday night or Sunday. What are some of those ways? What are some of the steps that you've taken as a, as a leader in the, in the community or, or what have you seen your congregants do? Well, we've kind of been poor in the realm of, of smaller groups for a long time. That's not really been our strength. We've been a church kind of known for the big event and the big room and the big gathering and, you know, the big worship and all of that. Um, I actually think that's not, done us as many favors. Like we, I think in the church, we overestimate the impact of what happens in a big space. I think we underestimate what happens in smaller environments. One of the ways my, uh, one of my uh, colleagues on staff describes it, and I don't think this is original with him, is really good things happen in rows, but the best part of church is experienced in circles. 
And so we've just uh, really gotten serious, maybe for the first time in several years about groups, we call them life groups, helping people make meaningful connections with others. We've really upped our game and our congregation has responded to that. We've done uh, health checks to the vulnerable in our community. We've been a series of phone calls. We've got care teams that are calling people who are uh, among our seniors, that sort of thing. So we've just found other ways to make connections. At Christmas time, uh, one of our traditions at Christmas Eve, we typically have hundreds and hundreds of people that come to Christmas Eve services. We've been doing family photos as part of that environment for years. Well, we did it this year, but we did it outside. And we had photographers set up. We had a registration speaker come in, take their Christmas cards, have quick little meaningful connections. We gave them a gift. So we've just adapted and found other ways to try to make those connections. But we're missing it for sure still. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody's, I mean, everybody in their own way is missing things. I know for people with faith traditions, um, church on Sunday or mass on Saturday, whenever it is, whatever your worship looks like, uh, whatever faith you follow, the, the tradition is is a huge part of it, which is a big part of the argument why a lot of folks are defying these health orders. Um, so you're gathering exclusively online, and maybe you've already just answered this question, actually. You've had some really interesting points, but do you think in a way or in some ways has, has your community, has your church family, has the body of the, of the church um, actually benefited in, in any ways, would you would do you think you might look back and say, "Boy, that was that was a real shot in the arm for us in a good way." Well, if you'll indulge a, a short story, sure, yeah. And this is just my opinion here, but uh, about a thirteen months ago, we we uh, typically take some of our leaders away on a retreat, and we did that last year in January, maybe the first part of February. And at that gathering, as we were doing our planning for the following year. We ended up in a very spirited discussion, about 12 of us around a, a table, about are we sort of addicted? I kid you not. We, I used the phrase at that meeting, I think we're addicted to gathering. And what I meant by that, the context of that was, as pastors, as, as ministry leaders, it seems like the only card we have in our hand or the only tool we have in our toolbox is calling everybody back to the campus for another thing. So it just, that's almost an instinct for people like me. You want to address something or teach something or get after something, you call everybody back. And I said, at some point, we have to find a way to um, not be so dependent on this one tool. And so I said, what's it going to take for us to deal with this issue and six weeks later, we were in a pandemic. I'm not saying I predicted anything, but in a weird sort of way, again, all human suffering aside, like this has been horrible economic impact, human suffering, sickness, death. Like I just, I wanna be really cautious with how I say this, but this season has actually forced us to simplify, to adapt, to get creative, and to really overcome some of our overdependency on one ministry tool. You, uh, by the way, in, in like true pastoral fashion, you, you, you we, we were e corresponding by email before and you sent me these like bullet points. It's amazing. I, it was, it's like I was like, I feel like you could just preach right off this. You laid out the interview. You're like, I could talk about this. I can touch on this. It's like I don't have to do any work on this, Pastor. But but what is this? You hinted and you said, if we have time, I can get into this. Well, that's what we have here on Real Talk. We got lots of time. Um, what was this? You said you did something kind of quirky last fall that you've never done before. What What is that? 
Well, I think that that was in reference to you said you might ask me what we've taught or what we've been teaching, where yeah. we've gone. Um, and, and and really, I typically am a, a few weeks and months out with what I think we're going to do. And I have a team and we do this together. Uh, we scrapped all of our plans in the spring and said, uh, we, you know, anything we had planned, we have to adapt to what's happening in our world. And so in the summertime, we taught parables and we, and we first went online only. Uh, we actually did stories because we were realizing that that what we're doing right now actually works really well for digital services engagement with people. So we did like 10 weeks of just people telling their stories and then short messages or homilies that come after that. We Then the fall, though, the thing that was kind of fun is I taught a book of the Bible that I've never taught in, in all my years as pastor, and it was the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, most people know uh, a few lines from Ecclesiastes because it was popular uh, from a song from the 60s. The birds, every yeah. Season to, the birds, exactly. <laughs> most people don't know that they're singing scripture when you sing that song. That's the part of Ecclesiastes that people are aware of. But we actually taught our way through the whole thing. And the basic message of Ecclesiastes is we're all going to die. Like, <laughs> That that is like we're gonna die. We're all doomed. It's over. Like, what's the point? Like, it's we're not wrong. Die. It's not right? wrong. No, yeah. it's it's bang on. But this this unnamed narrator basically says over and over and over, what's the point? What's the point? We're all gonna die. When you really get behind it, the whole message of Ecclesiastes is you're gonna die. So how are you gonna live? Live in light of your impending death. And you know, it's kind of cheesy to invoke the the country song, you know, live like you're dying, but not bad. It's actually pretty biblical to say, okay, we're all headed to the same place, to the same end. So what are we going to do with the time we have? And it was a, it really worked well as COVID was building in October, November. And again, I don't mean to, I'm sorry if I, that sounded like I was taking COVID lately. I'm not at all. No, I don't think but so. As things were getting, uh, you know, worse and we're heading into the winter months and we're all looking at is Christmas canceled. We had that phrase, well, just being really honest about um, our reality. And it was a really healthy thing for our congregation to grapple with uh, our own impending de demise. I, I love it. And those are the types of conversations we need to have. That's the, I mean, you look at this and you sort of say, you know, there's there's that uh, that meme that goes around. And I don't even know the root of it. I should. I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit obtuse on the pop culture front, but there's like this cartoon dog and he's surrounded by fire all around. And he just says, it's fine. <laughs> and they just sort of think like that's been society these days where we all, if you're not reckoning with these big questions right now, what are you even doing? Yeah. Like that, right. This would be a perfect time to invoke Monty Python, you know, only a flesh wound, you yeah, know, that sort yeah, of thing. Like, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm not, fine. I'm good. I'm not dead yet. Uh, exactly. Pastor, uh, I would imagine uh, if I know anything about your church uh, and, uh, and we just showed your website here and I know your, your worship team takes great pride in what they do. I would imagine the first yeah. service back in person, um, you guys are going to need 15 grand just for a pyrotechnics budget. I would, I would imagine, I would imagine you're, what's the one thing that you're most excited about when people are vaccinated, when these restrictions are lifted and when you've got, like, what's your capacity? Are you guys like 1200 or something like that? Yeah. Somewhere in that we, we actually did a fairly significant renovation on our, our, uh, worship space about four years ago and we made it much more multi-purpose so we actually can configure it interestingly it was kind of controversial at the time because it involved taking out the pews from the 60s and putting in an alternate form of seating that was movable and i think ryan you probably know that kind of change and how that affects certain people and i'm grateful for those that sacrificed you know 40 years ago to 
uh, help us have the facility that we have. But at the time we said we want it to be more versatile. Well, now it's been awesome. So we can configure our space and pods and do a lot of different things. But yeah, if we have all the seating in there, it's around 12 or 1300, something like that. Let what me, am I looking forward to? Go yeah, ahead. no, 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 go ahead. Well, what am I looking forward to? Again, I think we've been able to do the preaching thing. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't see anybody saying we're not getting the content or the teaching and it's not just our church. You can get good content anywhere. Um, there's tons of great communicators uh, on, online if you want to uh, look into the scriptures and be taught well. But what will be nice to come back together is that human connection. We had a taste of it in the fall because we did come back with all the protocols in place from uh, roughly September 1 until uh, end of November when things were going crazy. Uh, and we had a taste of it. A lot of our people aren't ready to come back yet. At that time, again, nobody was vaccinated and caseloads were going crazy. We're a few weeks away from reopening again. We've started to draw a circle around Easter, I think, is when we're going to relaunch again with adherence to all the protocol uh, demands in place by our public health officials. But when I had that experience of people coming back and seeing each other, even if you don't touch or do the things you used to do, the eyeball to eyeball human connection was really, really important. And again, as, as spring opens up and we can just sort of spill out outside and have lingering conversations, I think that's what people want more than anything. Uh, we're talking to Pastor Greg Hohalter, Sure Park Alliance Church, uh, SPAC.ca, if you want to check it out. Let me just, this is our live chat, people that are watching us on YouTube right now. Um, and, and by the way, everybody calm down. I, at some point I am going to ask the pastor about all the baseball bats in the background. So everybody just chill out. <laughs> obviously, obviously that's coming, but I'm not making that the first. Can everybody just please focus and be serious for a second? Um, we'll get on that in just a second, but, but there's a lot of great comments here. You know, Donna says, I bet you some people have actually joined churches over this past year because not everybody wants to really, you know, put themselves out there. Tracy says prior to the pandemic, we were a society that was becoming less and less resilient. Those who have embraced resiliency have navigated this pandemic well, and those who can't or won't are still struggling. Um, Tara says virtual church services have extended reach. They allow for people from far and wide to attend. I know some that have been able to live stream from their church into their hometown across the country, uh, which is an interesting point. Donna says, uh, I think this is a, a pastor I'd be willing to listen to if I was religious I describe myself as spiritual and I believe in the creator, but I like Greg. That's a compliment. What do you, what do you think? Sure it is. What, do, what do you think? I mean, we hear pastor. I don't have statistics. I don't have background. This is anecdotal, but I've heard people and I've read some pieces, people talking big picture about the challenge facing the church. I've oftentimes seen it framed as the challenge facing the Catholic church, but I think bigger picture people are saying, you know, with regards to faith tradition, fewer and fewer young people, Gen Z, millennials, what have you, are prioritizing church. Um, there's obviously implications for churches with regards to fundraising and those types of things. What trends do you see? Um, and 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 with young people that are that are either continuing the tradition that their family has held and now raising their own kids in the church, or that are coming to the church, what do you observe? Why are they there? What are they telling you? Well, there is no question that uh, my own kids who are 24 and 28, uh, they are hugely um, impactful on our congregation and our church doesn't even really know it yet. They and their partners and their friends 
who my wife and I intentionally surround ourselves with as much as possible these days, virtually and outdoors and that sort of thing. But I, I'm trying very much to listen to teenagers and especially young adults because they have a lot to say and, and they are the generation most concerned about uh, why Christians appear to be less loving than they ought to be. That is the generation. If you're 30 or under and you lack the capacity to lead with love, uh, you're going to be you're going to be watching the church and you're going to be questioning whether or not they're really following the person with whom we uh, claim to follow. Hmm. So I, I tend to want to really want to hear from I, my my assistant and some of the folks that I work with know that almost anybody basically who's who asks to hang out or ask for an appointment if they're under 30. The answer is yes. It typically is yes for anybody. But I especially want to hear from that younger generation because. Uh, we need to pave the way. We're, we're potentially losing a generation, um, and it's largely our sticking our own uh, foot in it is what's causing the, a lot of the problem. Yeah, interesting uh, note here from Haas, um, who quotes scripture, and and you know he's referencing the Pharisees, and this in the context of gathering, right? The context of physically gathering in defiance of public health orders. You could probably guess the passage. Um, He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Is that applicable here? You think Haas is demonstrating some insight there? Uh, Yeah, sure. uh, To to the context of that, uh, that's from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is correcting a lot of stuff that you've heard it said, but I tell you, so there's a, that's kind of the rhythm uh, of that segment of of Matthew. Um, I'll tell you how one way I apply this in our context, I've said to a lot of our people, and there's some restlessness with some of our folks, like, why aren't we shut down? Why don't we uh, open up and that sort of thing? And again, we're, we're getting there very soon, but um, I have said to a lot of our folks, we reside in Sherwood Park at the intersection of two of the, let's say, six major streets in Sherwood Park. We sit at a very prominent location and we're a very visible church in our community. And so that means our community is watching us. And for the last few weeks, the easiest justification for not being together has been the fact that all these people, thousands of cars are driving by our building every day like me, who are not getting together with family, who are not visiting their children. I spent, my wife and I spent our first Christmas without our grown kids this year. I was, uh, it kind of crushed us not to be with our kids. Of course. We're doing what we need to do, right? So how can we justify, I, I have a hard time, the dissonance caused by me inviting 300 people into our building, which would be roughly our 15% capacity, right. inviting 300 people into an indoor gathering at a time when I can't have dinner with my son, the dissonance caused by that is I can't. So because of our visibility to that point of that text of, of, you know, watching your actions in front of others. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's insight there and I think you're right. I mean, a huge part of it is setting an example, you know, I mean, um, let me let me read some of these. I know you're going to value hearing these, Pastor. Uh, Tanya is watching and she says, Pastor Greg is worried about the image that Grace Life and other radical elements have on people's perception of the church. But he here today is a good example of how a warm, loving, rational face matters, too. Uh, <laughs> this is from Craig, who says, can't you just ask God for forgiveness for missing church? I mean, God rested on the seventh day. He took breaks. <laughs> That's, yeah. There you go. Um, Shalane. 
Shalane says, you know, I've been so jaded by religion and, and, and that has been heightened by what I've seen from Grace Life. It's good for me today to be reminded that that community is the is the minority. And this pastor, I hope, is representing the majority. Um, oh, and, and if I can jump in, I yeah. absolutely think I am. Um, again, I, 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 I every other week uh, I gather up with seven colleagues um, three from Edmonton and four from Calgary, and we're all journeying together. And we're all kind of part of the Alliance family in, in Alberta, but we've been all just really embracing our leadership role, talking together, uh, networking together and, and paying attention to um, how we're coming across to our wider community. Yeah. And, and intentional fellowship too. Like this is interesting from Mark um, who writes in, I, I, I'm making such an assumption here. This is, this is horrible for me to do probably, um, but Mark and I go way back. He's, he used to listen to my old radio show from Salt Lake City every day, and he's come over and joined us here now. And just because he's in Utah, I'm assuming that Mark's Mormon, and I might be wrong about that, Mark, so my apologies. Yeah, be careful. Uh, yeah, I better be <laughs> careful. I know that he's going to, I know he'll correct me right away live here in the chat, but he says, I've seen a lot more individual interaction among my fellow congregants outside of church on Sunday over the past year than ever before. He says, it seems like, you know, before you only saw people on Sunday. That's an interesting observation. And I love this from Fatima who's watching in she says no word of a lie our Ramadan this year at home was the best Uh, she says we certainly missed attending mosque but having everybody at home for a month further connected us as a family and it was beautiful so that's a great comment Yeah, let me give you an example of even how that's played out for me Um, in this weird sort of way with one uh, with a couple of kids in, in Europe right now and a couple of kids in Quebec it's deeply grieving that we're not able to be together to to not see our son for a year uh that's never happened before so yet in a weird sort of way and to not have him a christmas in a weird way i've never felt closer to my adult kids because we're leaning into each other a whole lot more i'm so grateful that our kids actually want to talk to mom and dad um but we are conversing more than we ever have in a weird sort of way the distance has resulted in intentional pursuit of those critical relationships and we're closer so it's just a matter of your perspective a little bit. This this whole thing has caused us to uh, really look inward, see what matters. I probably feel closer to my wife because we've been home together a lot more and mostly gotten along. And so there's there's been some relational wins in all of this for sure. Um, this this is interesting. I've got kind of dueling narratives here. Um, you know, Lynn says, I wonder if Greg might actually be growing his congregation with this interview. She says, well-spoken, balanced, compassionate, genuine truly Christian that from Lynn meantime Gillarax isn't satisfied with my previous question it says Ryan needs to circle back and and ask why so many young people are leaving church it says atheism and non-religious groups are growing let me let me so I've just I've just googled and and um, I said young people leaving church I googled so here's my return Sam we can even put it up on the screen if you want so these are the returns I get about 155 million returns um, oh, this yeah. out of 538.com Millennials are leaving religion not coming back Christianity today the top reason young people drop out of church, breakpoint.org, why young people leave the church, focus on the family. That's Dr. James Dobson, obviously uh, right-wing conservatives are young people leaving the church in droves. Anyway, the point is these conversations are happening. Do you see it happening in your congregation? Uh, for sure. Uh, among those that uh, are, are trying to pay attention to what's happening in a world who uh, have young kids or growing kids, that sort of thing. I think it's an, always an ongoing conversation about how are we passing our faith on to the next generation. I'm convinced 
that the best way to pass our faith on to the next generation is to orient ourselves under the banner of the teachings of Jesus. Because I do believe the Jesus way, if you really, uh, sorry for this slight rabbit trail here, but um, one of the things that I will say sometimes is, is I'm not sure all scripture is equally rated. We have the Bible and as followers of of Christ as, as believers, as religious people, we're people of the book and, and that's our source and our authority, that sort of thing. But if I was to more, uh, I think I properly weight the gospels as most important because if we believe that Jesus is the revealed, uh, the one to reveal the nature and the character of God, then what you see in the actions and the teachings of Jesus is love and grace and compassion and kindness and care for the marginalized. And that's something that the current young adult generation and teenagers, they're all about that. They're actually some of the most gracious, loving people I've ever met and the most um, inclusive in how they approach friendships and relationships. And so I do, th- I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we're in, in horrible trouble or that it's doom and gloom because I actually think the solution is right in front of us. Greg, I want to I want to uh, just let you know how much we appreciate this uh, conversation, your availability today. As mentioned, uh, Joe and Chris and and Cam in the pizzeria and other regular viewers are 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 going to boycott this show if I don't leave at least a little bit of time for you to talk about th- this baseball shrine that you've got behind you and and those bats in particular. Is there? I know you've got your headphones in here, but are you able to? Can you can you go get like one or two of your favorite bats? And would you be able to show us up? I mean, people love this stuff. Okay, hang on a second. All right, so here he goes. I'll provide a little voiceover here. You, we, we've been hearing from Pastor Greg Hohalter, who's the lead pastor at Sherwood Park Alliance Church, spac.ca. Did you hear that? Did you uh, so, hear that? Well, I was just giving you a little filler. I was just giving you a little okay. voiceover. You're filibustering. I'm filibustering. That's exactly what I'm doing. So tell us what we're seeing here. Well, I'm first of all, my decor, I'm in my, my basement bunker and my daughter uh, calls my decor uh, dorm room is sort of my vibe. That's kind of what I'm going for. So I've got her old lava lamp. That's just my little shout out to my daughter back Atta there. Boy, there you go. And so, so I've got like dartboards. I've got golf putting mats back there. I've got the spongy golf balls. I've been trying to work on my short game over the winter during COVID. Uh, my wife and I play darts around here a lot. Um, for several years, uh, like I, I have this deep connection to the fire service, but as a guy who comes from the world of sports as well, uh, for five years in Calgary, I was the chaplain for the Calgary Cannons in the ah. 90s when we first moved to Canada. And so each of these bats, there's uh, for the five years that I was the chaplain for the Cannons, at the end of the season, uh, the team would sign a bat. So that's when we were back in, in uh, AAA back then. So, uh, And then this one, this is one that was given to me as a gift. So if you can see that, uh, my sister-in-law used to work for the Detroit Red Wings, who are owned by the Illich family, who own the Red Wings and the Tigers. And so when they went to the World Series, the Tigers in 06, they got me a customized bat with my name on it from the Tigers. So wow. just a couple of little pieces of, like, again, where do I put this stuff, right? This is the one. My wife's got incredible taste, and we have our whole house very tastefully appointed. But down here, it's anything goes. I just put all my little junk on here that's meaningful to me i've got a uh i've got a a hockey stick we're lucky enough to attend a game um russia sweden 88 olympic winter games in calgary uh down by the glass after the game a stick thrown from a player over to me i grab it i still have the stick i went to phil pritchard with the hockey hall of fame because i was trying to track down whose stick it was and he helped me and we determined that it was the stick that was used in the game 
by Alex McGilney, who scored with that stick. And then that was the last game he played for the USSR before defecting over and joining the National Hockey League. And uh, I still have. So it's like a phenomenal stick. And it's it's the oh, you imagine 1988. Right. So it's old. It's wood. Um, it has all of the branding spray painted black. You know, in the Olympics, nice. they couldn't show the brand names, all that kind of stuff. So I'm talking like this to my wife. I'm like, this is Alex McGillney's. And she goes, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, this should this needs to be like above the fireplace. Like, do you recognize? And no. Yeah, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. No, so no. No, I don't even have yeah, a nice. I've got something. I've got something over here. Uh, it's a hockey puck from 31 years ago or 30 years ago. It's a Minnesota North Stars puck. Yeah. Our fourth anniversary. Uh, I convinced my wife to go see a, a hockey game in Minneapolis and it was the Kings uh, North star. So Gretzky was in town. Let's go to the game. You know, we, and we got tickets fairly low, kind of blue line ish. And back then the glass was lower and this hockey puck came over midway through the game on a line and it happened so fast. It came behind my wife's head like this much, like she was on the aisle and I was next seat in and this puck came across and hit the bottom of the seat of the guy behind us, like between his legs almost, but I got the puck. And so I have the puck that almost took my wife out on our fourth anniversary, Minnesota North stars right over there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, pastor Greg Hohalter, um, hey, a good pastor's got an old baseball and hockey because the metaphors abound uh lead pastor at uh, sure park alliance church thanks so much for this we appreciate it you're welcome thank you yeah you bet uh real talkers thank you for your comments on here as well we've been sort of trying to keep up with the live chat and and um and there's some great conversations going on there i know that i i know that a lot of you are uh um, you know, have a lot of time for what pastor has to say. I know a lot of you have no time for organized religion. That's totally fine. The, the, what reiterate the, what this reiterates to me is that this is a community that is diverse. Uh, it's a community that comes at, at this thing from different perspectives. And I'm seeing agnostics and atheists and, 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 and people living with Catholic guilt. Um, <laughs> I'm saying with a smile on my face and uh, evangelicals and people of the Jewish and Muslim faiths. And, and, and so many people here gathering in community every single day and talking about issues that matter and I love it. Alyssa says we need a we need a sports segment on this show. Um, yeah, maybe. Mike says that was a great interview. Tara says I was allowed to explore many different religions growing up, and and I ultimately came to the conclusion that my my moral compass was enough to guide my life without the guilt that I felt that religion had on me. Yeah, I mean this is this is great. And then some of you are just talking about your. Uh, your uh, sports memorabilia, <laughs> which is great. So, uh, yeah, this is awesome. Lauren says, what a great positive interview. Pastor Greg is impressive. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thanks, everybody, for the comments. I wanted to get to this email from Sherry. Sherry actually CC'd us on a letter, uh, an email that she wrote to the premier. And she says, uh, Premier Kenny, I love when you CC talk at RyanJesperson.com. Let's the politicians know that you're keeping them honest as well and that there's a chance that their letter might be read and in front of, if I can say, Canada's most listened to daily news podcast audience. Sherry says, uh, Premier Kenny, just in case you forgot, laws give us rules of conduct that protect everybody's rights. And I'm disgusted with what I've been seeing around my home in Alberta. When will the law be applied to all members of Grace Life Church? The many folks out there not wearing masks. You know, we see police officers shaking hands with anti-mask protesters. I'm assuming talking about Chinook Center in Calgary on that video. You know, keep, and we're just keeping people safe while they protest. Your silence, Premier, sends a dangerous message that my life and those that are taking the virus more seriously doesn't matter. 
Which communities are you protecting? Because it sure doesn't look like you're here for the average law-abiding Alberta citizen. That from Sherry, who CC'd Real Talk. I thank you for that. You know, the team at Clean Air Club wants to make sure that your family is not just saving money, but breathing easy. And if you can accomplish both of those things at the same time, why wouldn't you do it? You know that your furnace filter needs to be changed. If you're like me, all of a sudden you kind of have this wake up call, you know, once every like kind of maybe three or four months and you go, oh my gosh, the furnace filter. And by the time you check it and you look, you go, oh, because you think of all the air that's running through the vents in your house. I know I'm painting a gross picture right now, but that's kind of the point. All the air that you're breathing is going through that filthy filter. So you want to make sure you change it on the pace it should be changed at cleanairclub.ca. You register, you let them know what size furnace filter you need. Typically the next day, or within a couple of days, it's right there on your doorstep. A good ample supply so you can keep them in that regular replacement rotation. Plus, you're going to pay less than you would in the store. And they provide a little gift for you. A little gift. Real talkers are loving that. You can register today at cleanairclub.ca. Also wanted to remind you at altastorage.ca, you'll find the team at Alta Moving and Storage. As the name would suggest, they're in two businesses and they do them better than anybody else in Alberta. If a move is in your near future, but it makes your palms sweat because you can't, you're just envisioning the stress that comes with it, that big, that big rig, that 18-wheeler parked outside your house, the movers are waiting and you're not ready to go, pod-style containers allow you to move at your pace that's what they do well plus long and short-term storage solutions and those eco-friendly frog boxes the future of moving boxes too at alta moving and storage i first met this guy a a number of years ago um, and if you're just about to meet him for the first time brace yourself because he's a compelling speaker he's a doer as a matter of fact he's about to kick something off on friday that's a big deal Uh, He's a published author. He's a celebrated speaker. And all of this, though, based on his response to great tragedy in his own personal life. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the show Mike Cameron. Mike, it's so good to reconnect. I feel like it's been, I don't know, a couple of years, it feels like, since we last spoke. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We talked, I think, last May around around this time. I did uh, did the same thing, I and mean, so we had a similar conversation. So I'm I'm super grateful to be here, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Well, you're not afraid of tough conversations. You're the author of a book, "Becoming a Better Man," and I know that you embrace opportunities to talk about men and emotions and the price of patriarchy and grief and and fatherhood and what it means to to be a good partner. Um, For a lot of people that speak with great passion, uh, it comes from resilience, I think, and uh, as a result of the journey of of recovering from or rebounding from tragedy. For those that aren't familiar with your personal story, you have experienced loss uh, in the most horrific fashion. Uh, Will you tell us your story? Yeah, you bet. I I will. I'm going to change names a little just to respect family privacy. Sure. Um, But... Yeah, in October of 2015, um, Friday morning, I, I woke up like pretty much any morning and uh, Carissa uh, had to teach yoga. So got up early at 6 a.m. and and uh, went out to, to go teach yoga. I rolled over, went back to sleep and got up around 7 a.m., uh, shot out that text, said, hey, how was yoga? And 
got no response, kind of carried on about my day and had breakfast, a couple of phone calls later, no response and went about my morning and uh, ultimately, you know, you start getting that that feeling in the, in the pit of your stomach when, when you just know something's not right. And uh, so a couple more texts and no response and again, starting to feel like this is really out of character. And ultimately, I, I got that phone call. And uh, the voice on the other end of the line said, is this Mike Cameron? And I said, yes. And he said, this is Constable so-and-so. And I, I got to tell you, Ryan, I, I, I don't remember his name. And my heart just sank. And I, I just said, is, is she OK? And he said, where are you? And I said, is she OK? And he says, where are you? We're at your house. We're coming to you. And so I told him where I was. I hung up the phone and walked out of the restaurant where I was. and waited outside for what felt like an eternity, but was was probably only five or six minutes and uh, stood there on the curb and and uh, ultimately an unmarked police car pulled up across the street and this big badass burly looking cop gets out and starts walking towards me and we meet halfway across the street. And uh, after identifying who I was, he just looked me in the eye and he said, Carissa is dead. And I just stood there in shock and I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And what had happened was she had been shot and killed by an ex-boyfriend who subsequently took his own life. And um, yeah, you know, we, we all, we have these pivotal moments and these, these things that we just think can't happen to us. You know, there was some conversation about about privilege in the in the chat room uh, earlier that I was watching, and and uh, you know, as a middle aged white dude in Sherwood Park, you just you take for granted the things that you have, and this kind of thing doesn't happen to me. This is the kind of thing that happens in in made for TV movies. This isn't real life, and you know, ultimately, as I sat there and in the back of that unmarked police car. And I just sat there saying, this can't be real. This can't be real. This can't be real. But eventually realized that, you know what? This was probably the most real thing I was ever going to face in my entire life. Had there been, um, had you been aware of the domestic violence that was about to manifest itself in, in such a devastating way? Is this something that you as a couple had been dealing with in past? Were you totally blindsided? I mean, obviously the death uh, would blindside anybody, but is this something that, that ha had she been living in fear? Had you been aware of this, suspected it? Yeah, I mean, there was there was definitely red flags. There were definitely issues that were were being addressed, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, if I knew then what I know now, I mean, certainly things would have been done differently. But you know, you you, you can't dwell on that. And so I look at you know, certainly I had many people surround me, and and. Uh, a lot of folks wanted me to, to go after the justice system, which certainly failed her at that, that time. And, you know, when I looked at this and I looked at sort of my career and we can, we can backpedal a little bit and talk about, you know, you talked about how I, I talk about the impact that emotion has on, on human behavior. And when I looked at, you know, how could I best serve, 
how do we build a better restraining order is akin to putting a Band-Aid on a ruptured jugular. And I really wanted to look at how, how do we prevent, how do we get to the root cause of this? How do we prevent men getting to this point in the first place? You know, this was a man that made a decision with very permanent consequences based on a very temporary emotion. And as men, if we don't understand those underlying emotions that drive the decisions that we make, that ultimately drive the behaviors that we take, we have zero chance of living a fully awakened and, and purposeful existence. My so again, to me, as an entrepreneur, as a business guy, it's about getting back to that that root cause. So do you think, had you are you saying, had you not experienced this great loss and this personal tragedy and the loss of your of your partner, your loved one, um, do, do you think you, I mean, would life have, have taken you to the point where you're at now? Do you think you would have written a book? You think you'd be talking about people? You think you, like, you don't write and you can't tell men how to be better and how to smash the patriarchy or how to get in touch with their emotions or unless you've figured out or on the road to figuring out that for yourself. Yeah. So, so to be clear, I mean, this is a journey, this is a process. So I had in fact started this book um, long ago hmm. and it started out as really a business book, you know, as, as a speaker, I've taught sales and leadership stuff. Again, always talked about the impact that emotion has on human behavior, but always in the context of sales and leadership. So that's where this book had started. You know, I often issued what I would consider a 30 day challenge to those that come to, to my keynotes. And I thought, well, you know, if I just put together maybe a series of, you know, 60 to 90 second videos that I could put out on a daily basis for those that came and saw me speak, I could give them something to take away that they could implement after the talks. And so as I started writing out the scripts for these videos, you know, I got a thousand to 2000 words per video and, you know, times 30, all of a sudden it's like, huh, this is starting to look like a book. And so that's where the book began. And then it shifted. I started really exploring probably a decade ago, I really started exploring that masculinity piece. And, and what does it mean to be a dude? Um, and, you know, Carissa used to always tease me about how badass I was as, as a business owner, um, a rock climber, a yogi, an Ironman, an ultra marathoner. Um, I would always get teased about how badass I was. And I got to tell you, as a guy that's always been more sort of geek than jock, you know, that always made my heart swell with pride. Right. Um, but it was it was a trip to Penticton uh, where I was going to be competing in an Ironman event that, you know, I really got a lesson on what it means to be badass. And that was my my 65 year old aunt told us who lives in Penticton, um, had us over and was telling us this story about how she had decided she was going to do this 5K fun run leading up to the race, leading up to the event that I was doing. And she's telling us the story. She says, you know, I knew full well I was going to be dead last, but I wanted to do it anyways. So, you know, Saturday morning comes and I line up way at the back of the pack because I don't want all these kids passing me. She says, the gun went off and off I go. And I ran and, you know, I get within 750 meters of the finish line and she says, all of a sudden, this kid on a bike starts riding beside me. And of course, when she says kid, 
she's talking about probably somebody in their late 20s, early 30s. It was one of the event organizers. She says, I looked over at him and I said, you're here because I'm last, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And he says, yep, I'm afraid so. But you're doing great. You're doing great. And he starts cheering her in. And uh, so she finishes telling us this story. She says, you know, I got I got within 100 yards of the finish line and I could see that I'm so far last. They've already started packing up the PA system. They've already started tearing down the, the finish line. But when he let them know she was still out on course, they set everything back up. So she finishes the story and goes to clear the table. And, and we just looked at each other and she says, you know what, Mike? She goes, now that's freaking badass. <laughs> That entire drive home from Penticton, we talked about what does it really mean to be a badass, and especially in the context of, of masculinity. And we happened to be listening to Brene Brown on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he talked to talked about, he said, you know, what do you think of the over-feminization of boys in our school system? And I thought, oh, that's an interesting thought question, but she handled it's a, it it's, really a lo it's a loaded question. It really is. Well, she handled it brilliantly because, yeah, it caught my attention. I thought, huh, okay, how's she going to handle this? She said, you know, Tim, I don't believe that masculine and feminine are mutually exclusive. And then she said something that wrapped it all together for me. She said, I believe that the perfect combination of tough and tender is that exact equation for badassery. Mm. I thought, boom, there it was. And if you followed Brene's work, you know, she also talks about how vulnerability is the core of all emotion. So, you know, my, my 65 year old aunt being, having the courage to be as vulnerable as she was competing in an event, knowing full well, she was going to finish dead last. I mean, that's courage. That's vulnerability. That being the core of all emotions, emotions drive their decisions, decisions drive our behaviors. Again, to me, this just comes back to, as men, what we need to do. There's there's a lot of talk these days, and, and, and it's positive. Um, you know, we talk about the, the patriarchy, and, and we'll get, depending on who we're talking to here on the show, we'll see it in the live chat. And I love the responses. People just start, like, you know, holding up this, this you know, the, the raised fist and smash the patriarchy, and people talk about this. And then you talk about masculinity. People, more and more people are, are educating themselves or learning more or debating um, what is toxic masculinity. Um James is watching us live this morning and, and he says, you know, men have been emotionally stunted uh, for years, yes. you know. So let, let me just ask you to run with that, because obviously it seems like you've got something to say there. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, so we talk a lot about mental health and in particular for me, men's mental health is is a critical component but I would like to shift the conversation a little bit because I think when we talk about mental health, it's this on or off. You're either healthy or you're sick. But I like to talk about emotional fitness because we understand there are varying degrees of fitness, you know, from extremely overweight and out of shape to, you know, David Goggins fit. There's, there's a spectrum there. So, that emotional fitness piece, I think, is is critical. And to your your listeners' point, um, we're stunted. We don't have the opportunity to practice that emotional fitness. We know that if we want to get physically fit, we go to the gym, we lift weights a couple of times a week. We get we get physically fit. 
Yet when it comes to our emotional fitness as men, what do we do? And the answer for most is absolutely nothing. We don't do anything when it comes to our emotional fitness. So really it, it is absolutely critical to our mental health. And I'll say that because, because it is important. But again, I think when we talk about mental health, it's this either I'm sick or I'm not. So it's easy to dismiss mental health as, well, I'm not sick, I'm okay. But if we talk about emotional fitness, you know, certainly all of us are somewhere along the spectrum of fitness when it comes to our emotional health. And so, you know, I work with a lot of business leaders. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and salespeople. And, and I got to tell you, Ryan, the more emotionally fit you are, the better you are as a leader. And one of my favorite things that I talk about all the time is, you know, it's, it's that emotional reconnection practice. And the reason I'm passionate about that is because emotionally connected men don't freaking kill people. Emotionally connected men don't kill themselves. Emotionally connected men make better partners. They make better fathers. They make better leaders. They make better human beings. And so it's just, it's critical in so many domains, so many arenas that we have this conversation and create these opportunities for men to really find ways to practice that emotional fitness and practice that vulnerability. What do you think is the biggest thing standing in the way of emotional? I mean, I, maybe it's maybe you have to approach it from a case by case basis. Um, but is there one common thing that stands in the way of of emotional fitness and in particular for men? Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's still a lot of societal stigma stigma about men expressing emotions. We're definitely moving the needle in that regard. So my concern with that is as we move the needle and we start to have more conversation, it starts to get easy to just tune that out as meaningless platitudes. So again, for me, I come at it from this, okay, so where, because guys, as guys, like we want to perform, we want to provide, we want to excel, we want to drive, we want to produce, we want to be excellent. Um, so I come at it from that lens. Like if that's what you want to do, this is the path to do it. And oh yeah, by the way, it also solves a lot of these other issues that we're seeing. And that, that emotional fitness, your, your mental health, the amount of anxiety, depression, all of these things that we're seeing uh, in society these days come to the forefront, especially because of the pandemic, the isolation you know, again, it's just, it's critical that, that we create these spaces. And, and for me, that's what it comes down to is creating these spaces, not only to talk about it, but to practice it. And again, for me, when I, you know, I got divorced in 2012 and I really dove into sort of that inner work. You know, I, I, I worked on my physical fitness. I found yoga, I found meditation and I started doing that inner work. But what I realized was, you know, coming back to that vulnerability piece, vulnerability by definition isn't something we can practice alone. Vulnerability by definition takes more than one person. So creating these spaces and opportunities for men to get together and to share and say, hey, Ryan, you know what? I got to tell you, man, like, I'm really nervous right now. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety about how this message is going to be received. So, you know, I use a framework that I call SOAR, slow down, open up, accept, and reconnect. 
So I actually employed that before we went live here. Because hang, on, hang on a second. You know, Slow down, open up, accept, and reconnect? Correct. Okay. Yeah, so that slow down is just practice that pause. Take that breath. And then open up. Okay, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. And that's okay. Okay, don't bury it, don't avoid it, don't man up through it, don't push through it. Just open up and let it come. And then accept that. Okay, yeah, I accept, I'm nervous. Mm. I'm nervous. And then I can reconnect with my inner self and my purpose. And for me, my purpose showing up here with you is to share this message and have this conversation. So, you know, it's just, it's so powerful. Like even in the boardroom, I use this. Taking 60 seconds at a board meeting to just say, okay, you know what? We're just gonna take 60 seconds and we're gonna pause. We're gonna breathe. I don't wanna get all new age and woo woo, but we're just, we're gonna practice the pause. And what that does is most of us these days, you know, we're rushing to our computers to hop on our next Zoom meeting and we're frantic and we're out of sorts and we're, but when I create that 60 seconds, it's like, okay, I can slow down. I can get fully present. I can open up to the moment. I can accept why I'm here and I can reconnect with our purpose of whatever today's meeting might be. And so it's a framework that works exceptionally well you know, again, for me, it started as as sort of this men's work thing, but it absolutely extends into into the work I do with business and, and organizations as well. It's been just absolutely unbelievable. Hmm. You should see that our, our live chat right now is awesome. Um, I've, I've, it's and I'm seeing a lot of new names in here, at least new to me, because I just kind of drop in on the chat. Uh, but 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 what that's telling me is that people are opening up now that might not otherwise be chiming in on different conversations, which is great. Um, you know, Blake says we are all works in progress, learning as we go hopefully all striving to be better as we go as well. Um, Craig, I wanted to give a shout out to his podcast, but he says that it's a private, they, they, they only circulate within their friends, which is great. But he says they do a podcast, they record one with friends where they talk about a lot of life issues and mental health is one of them. And he says, it's taught me a lot of new things about guys I've known for more than 15 years. Um, and yes. they value it so much that they do it semi-weekly. Uh, Wig with is watching says so much in our society tells men to be strong and sometimes we need to accept that we're weak uh, or that we need to reach out for health uh, for help. Um, I, I don't even think I, I don't think reaching out for help is a sign of weakness. I, I think that it's you know, I, I was talking about this the other day where, where someone had referred to something as a crutch. Um, and as a matter of fact, we we're having a conversation, just another light conversation about religion. And a friend of mine said, uh, a friend of mine says, well, religion is a crutch. And I sat there and I thought, yeah, I'm and, and people can have different interpretations. And for everyone, you know, their life is going to be different. Their priorities are different. But what is a crutch? A, a crutch is a tool that we use right. to help us stand and to help us move around. And quite frankly, crutch to me is not a derogatory word. Um, and everybody's got crutches in their own way, right? I mean, this is all a matter of yeah. perception. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, to touch on the privilege thing, because I talk about this and I, I want to acknowledge, absolutely, like I said, as a middle-aged white dude, I carry some privilege with me. You know, my hope is that I can use that privilege to impact change. But we also need to acknowledge that with that privilege comes a price. Like there is a weight that men are carrying 
And it's sometimes not politically correct to acknowledge that because we've got it all. You know, we, we've got the privilege for sure. Absolutely. But we also carry this weight that we this feeling that we have to be the provider. We have to perform. We have to take care of the family. And we wear this armor we, and we carry this weighted vest around with us. And I talk about this all the time, this weighted vest that we carry. And, and I often ask guys, so what do you do for relief? And, you know, I was recently talking to one guy who plays guitar and he said, that's my relief. I said, so when you play guitar, is that weighted vest still there? He says, no, I take it off. Hmm. I said, okay, but what happens when you stop playing guitar? He says, yeah, you're right. Like I put it back on again. And when we can get around a table together as men and we can start to share that, you know what? Yeah, I do feel this. And I don't want to burden my partner because, you know, COVID's got me worried about my job. And as the man, I'm supposed to provide for my family. And again, I know the narrative is changing. And I know intellectually, we all know that. But there's still these deep-seated and ingrained beliefs about who we're supposed to be as a man. So this whole becoming a better man, for me, it's, it's not prescriptive. It's not me saying thou shalt and, and you need to. This is simply my story because I've had, you know, sort of three sort of pinnacles of adversity in my life that I talk about in the book. You know, when I was a teenager, I was a jerk. Um, Mom and dad shipped me off to Australia to live with my uncle John. I got into a car accident over there. I was almost, I was almost killed. Um, you know, in my 20s, I worked for a finance company that turned out to be one of the largest Ponzi schemes in British Columbia history, um, lost millions of dollars for people I cared very deeply about. Wow. Um, you know, so so all of the things I learned trying to run with the pack of the, the badass businessman and, and the, you, you know, the be that hyper masculine dude. Um that's just me sharing those stories because I, I think there's a lot of lessons. Can we keep, I, I asked you to stay here uh, till 1030. We're already way past that. If you're listening live, obviously if you're listening to the podcast, time is irrelevant, but can you stick around a little longer? Or do you have another interview? Yeah, to do? Good, sure. Okay. Hang tight. Uh, Cause we're, we're, I feel like we're just getting started here and the audience is, is loving this. Um, Gillarax writes in to say, Hey Ryan, you want to talk about podcasts? Uh, the team at sick boy podcast are really great. They talk a lot about mental health. Um, Tracy says, I have three boys and we've been working on their emotions and their feelings all the time. And, it, and it's more important than schoolwork to us. Tracy, I think that's great. Yes. Um, NQ says, uh, raising a sensitive, emotional boy over here. Uh, we're continually butting up against cultural expectations of toxic male identity while trying to teach emotional literacy to my son every day. Uh, Eric says we have to talk about an unwillingness to be vulnerable. William says I'm learning my own mental health is a bit of a mess, but I'm always learning and I'm growing and I'm trying to get over past issues, which is amazing. Um, more. Uh, we're talking to Mike Cameron more in just a second. Uh, Want to pause very quickly uh, to remind you that running a small business is not a nine to five job and neither is taking care of your employees. And that's where a group benefit plan from Alberta Blue Cross can help with digital tools that do the heavy lifting for you from start to finish. 
Your employees can enroll and manage their benefits digitally anywhere on any device. And as plan administrator, you can oversee the entire account all in real time, all within your budget. Learn how Alberta Blue Cross makes managing your health and dental life and disability coverage simple and affordable at abluecross.ca. We told you yesterday how excited we are to add the team at McBain Camera to our family of Real Talk builders. They're Alberta's best destination for photographers and content creators. They invite you to tell your story beautifully with the Nikon Z50 camera. You'll get stunning 4K Ultra HD with 1080p slow motion time lapse mode and a whole lot more, including that flip down LCD screen to activate self portrait mode. It's perfect for taking selfies. Uh, you can download Nikon's webcam utility and live stream from Zoom or Twitch or YouTube or whatever else like a pro. And right now, when you order a Nikon Z50 body or kit at McBainCamera.com and use the promo code REALTALK, one word, REALTALK is a promo code, they're going to give you a free ProMaster Hitchhiker Tabletop Tripod with your order. McBain's knowledgeable staff eager to help answer all your questions in person at six Alberta locations or at McBainCamera.com. A remarkable conversation uh, that we're having right now with Mike Cameron. He's the author of Becoming a Better Man. And uh, Mike, I'm, I'm captivated by what we're seeing here on our live chat how about this from Trisha? I mean, we talk about we're hearing from a lot of parents right now that are saying, you know, we're, we're, we're working to raise our own kids, our own boys in particular. NQ said to teach emotional literacy to my son every day. Trisha wonders, how do we support as as women, uh, the men in our lives uh, to not see it as yeah, here we go. I know you want this one uh, to, to not see it as weak. Right. To even broach the subject of feelings, never mind getting really, truly working on something constructive and healing. What's your message to the ladies out there? Yeah, you know what? It's it's challenging for sure to get the men engaged. But one of the things from from a, a, a partner perspective is really just to be supportive. Again, you're not there to fix anything. You're just there to listen. And I think, and especially as, as guys, we tend to do this. So this is what I have to get over with the guys all the time is when I open up and share, you know, if it, in the example I gave you earlier, if I'm sharing to you, Ryan, that, that I'm feeling a little nervous, I can almost guarantee that your instinct was to right away say, you know what, Mike, don't worry about it. Don't be nervous. It's all good. You wanted to fix me. You wanted to fix that. And that's not what's needed. I just need to be able to sit with that feeling. So for a partner to create the environment where it's okay for their, for their husband, their, their male partner to do that is critical. And it can be challenging because a lot of times, you know, our partners are, are, are and I'm using, you know, a heterosexual couple, our, our female partners are our only emotional support. So what I've seen happen in some cases is it can be threatening to the partner when we see the guys getting together and getting emotional support somewhere else. And I think it's really important for them to do that because it's a different kind of emotional support. But I know as a, as a partner, it can, it can be a little bit threatening. Well, wait a minute. I'm his emotional support. If he starts getting his emotional support from some other dudes, maybe he doesn't need me as much. And, and so that, I mean, just that's something to be aware of 
again, it's that slow down, open up, accept and reconnect. If that's coming up for you as a partner, take that pause and just open up and say, okay, is that coming up? Accept that that's there. It's okay. Right. Cause if we don't accept, we get into this, you know, now I feel crappy for feeling crappy and it becomes this big spiral Yeah, and we go downhill. But when we can accept that, okay, yeah, that is what I'm feeling. I'm now aware of it. And, you know, as I heard totally talks about with awareness comes choice. Now we can make the choice about how we show up. You know, one of my favorite uh, YouTube videos, besides your show, of course, um, there was a, it's not about the nail. I don't know if anybody's seen that. Uh, I think it was an insurance commercial where it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a guy and a girl and she's got a, she's literally got a nail stuck in her head and she's complaining and talking about this headache and he wants to fix it. He wants to pull the nail. Out. Well, I think, I think the headache is because you've got a nail in your head and she's saying, you just don't understand. You're just not listening to me. I just have this headache. So that's worth uh, Googling and, and watching that, that video um, because that's exactly what we need to do hmm. is I, just go ahead. Uh, no, uh, no, I was, I don't need to step on your toes. Uh, this is man. I can't wait to get back in studio. You, you, we need, I'm so desperate for studio in studio conversations. I'm always stepping on people's toes on zoom, but I was just, I was just, I'm, I'm blown away at what I'm seeing in our live chat right now. And this is great. I just know that when this podcast goes out to later today, that we're going to see a huge response to this. You should see this. I mean, everybody, you know, hope writes in and says, I worked in the car business for 30 years. It's, it's like toxic to the extreme. It's even worse with young men says I was yeah. I was I was hoping they'd soften up and I did notice that some would open up and, and share their fears I saw another uh, comment from here a listener I'm going to try to track it down that says um, you know in boardrooms here it is Wigwith says I've the business world is full of toxic masculinity I've sat in a room full of salespeople and even the women are acting like dudes you know showboating yes. and bragging I guess maybe in part you know, because that's kind of been the rules of engagement. Do you think, Mike? I mean, that's sort of what people have perceived to be the necessary approach to success. Yeah, that that one for me is really interesting. That that sort of gender equity piece at the corporate level is critical. And and yeah, I mean, that's part of my fear is that for our female counterparts, we don't want the pendulum to swing so far into that again, the, the, and I hate the term toxic masculinity because I don't believe that masculinity in and of itself is toxic. Okay. Yeah. Let's get but into this. Some, let's get into this. Right. But, but it's, it's some of those characteristics. So what I don't want to see is women having to start to exude those toxic characteristics to, to get ahead and to get equal. And so that's where, where I think there's, also potential troubles. So when I talk about gender equity, if we can have this conversation and we can get, you know, emotionally connected men aren't afraid of women as peers. They're not afraid as of women as superiors. You know, most of the inequity comes from insecurity. So if we can get rid of the insecurity and really have that conversation with, okay, why do you feel threatened, Mike? When you, when you see a female rising up through the ranks or, you know, why does that threaten you, Mike? And then you just, you give me the space to be able to unpack that and say, you know, I don't really know. I've never really thought about it before, but it just annoys me. 
Yeah. Or, you know, maybe maybe there is a legitimate reason or legitimate in my head why it threatens me. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's soar through that. Because when we can do that, you know, and, it, and if we do that and we can elevate sort of the consciousness of, of men, and, and I really, I don't love generalizing, but, but if we can elevate that, then, you know, that whole gender equity conversation, it kind of goes away and we just come together. You realize that, like, I'm just making an observation here that might be obvious, and, and I'm sure it's not lost on you. But I, one of the things about the way that you communicate, which I really appreciate, is you 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 have these like little snippets that you throw in that are that are quite inclusive. Like you note, for example, when you're describing a heterosexual couple, you note that, um, or you talk about you don't like necessarily the phrase toxic masculinity because you don't think masculinity is inherently toxic, or these types of things that gender equity in the boardroom, and and so much of your message is approachable. And uh, that's one of the things that I think is really important here, right? Because, you know, having these conversations, I, I talked to a buddy the other day and he works in a certain industry where he said that the homophobic language that he encounters is pervasive and perpetual. And he wants to stand up and say something about it, but he fears that he would be ostracized. And he said it's so normalized that he just knows that the first thing he says is going to be like drawing this line in the sand, which I reminded him is not necessarily a bad thing, but, yes. but having these conversations sometimes like just getting, just getting started, just getting the ball rolling can feel like such a huge hump to get over because people feel threatened. People can get defensive. There's tradition, right? So yeah, this like this is such a great conversation because a couple couple of things with that one. If you need to have that conversation where somebody's not being appropriate, you know, one of the quick tools that I use is just to tilt my head and say, "I don't get it," and then just wait, right, and see what comes up. So make it a little bit awkward. I I don't get it, or here. This one for me was a game changer. When I shifted from judgment to curiosity, everything opened up. Again, you know, I used to have some pretty alt-right kind of beliefs. And I used to be quite judgmental. Hmm. And I still catch myself today. But one of my core values is curiosity. And my mantra for that is curiosity over judgment. So I use that judgment piece as a trigger to grab curiosity. As soon as I start catching myself going, oh, I don't like the way Ryan looks today, or I don't like the way Ryan's shirt's hanging, or why hasn't he shaved his beard, or you know, whatever. As soon as I catch myself getting judgmental, then I quickly flip that into curiosity. Okay, Ryan, why, why are you wearing that today? Why did you change those glasses? Can we make, can we make or, this know, about uh, Sam? Can we make it about Sam? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam and I were geeking out about gear gear while I was waiting oh, for you. Okay, so. okay. But yeah, you know what? I love what you're saying about curiosity, you know, your core value of curiosity. Um, I remember when I, when I did an interview uh, right at the, at the inception of this show back in November and somebody said, what's your what's your mandate or how do you approach each show? And I said, well, we will. I said, we promise to our audience we will be perpetually curious. And that's yes. the mandate of the show. And that's quite frankly, I've driven my career, I think, on a personal side, emotional exploration. 
uh, what you're talking about is huge. I want to get back to you. You wouldn't believe the number of comments we have. Uh, N says, my 10-year-old son comes home probably once a week wondering, why do I cry so easy? I hate it. Why don't my friends cry so easily? Why is it just me? I had to find a place today. I had to find a place today, mom, to hide so they wouldn't laugh at me. Um, I'll let you answer this, but let me say my answer is you just tell those other 10-year-olds on the school ground that that Ryan Jesperson, a full-grown man, was weeping at the movie The Art of Racing in the Rain the other day. Uh, you just tell them that a 43-year-old grown-ass man balls at movies. Uh, I think crying's okay. Um, and I think that that's another thing. But what do you say? I mean, for parents that are watching right now, Mike, especially these parents, a lot of them chiming in with young boys age 7 to 14 kind of a thing. Yeah, it's definitely hard. And, you know, you can't not acknowledge the fact that it's challenging when your peers are laughing at you for crying. Um, so the just the message, it's okay to cry, um, is, is great. But it's about addressing the where, where are these feelings coming from, for, from the other boys or the other people that are that are taunting you and teasing you. But the beautiful thing is, again, for me, it's not about the crying. It's about the depth of emotion. And so when you can experience that sadness, to that level, to that depth, without bottling it up, without pushing it down, that means you can also experience the other side, the joy, the excitement, the happiness. And, and I got to tell you, Ryan, like for me, the difference has been living in black and white and living in 4K full, full color. The depth of experience, the richness of experience that my life has now that I've learned to really, truly, honestly be able to feel to that level is incredible. So yeah, there's some, there's some price to pay for being that vulnerable, but the, the reward is unbelievable. So you're right. I mean, absolutely. We encourage our kids to continue to show our emotion. Um, and maybe we have that conversation about, some of this comes from a place of insecurity when they're the taunting and laughing. I mean, maybe they wish they could be that emotionally expressive. Yeah. Maybe they wish they could be, they could feel as deeply as you can. Maybe they wish they could be as happy as you, you are when you're happy. Because if you're that sad, probably you are that expressive then probably you're that expressive on the other end of the equation as well. Yeah, that's really well said. Heidi says, you know, there are so many jobs that require people to turn off their emotion for the greater good, kind of high conflict involving tragic circumstances. The relief for that buildup is necessary, but rare. Audra says listening to this is so empowering. I'm raising a young man who suffered childhood trauma and we're working through that. And, and I'm trying to make sure that he realizes that he can be vulnerable um, you know, Craig says, I knew some people, men and women who thought that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street was the coolest thing ever. And they wanted to do that. And I thought it was horrifyingly bad. And I was cheering for the FBI agents uh, when I was watching the movie. That's a hilarious comment. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I lived The Wolf of Wall Street. That was that was my finance experience. It wow. was it was that kind of thing. Amazing. Kaylin says my fiance and I had a a really cool conversation recently about what aspects of masculinity I value in myself and what aspects of femininity he values in himself. And it was a great way to get past the stigma. 
Um, Donna says the best thing that happened for my partner's mental health when he retired, he started meeting his retired friends for coffee. Uh, Gillerax says there's this toxic idea that straight males cannot be emotional for fear is being seen as gay. I've seen it in friend groups, and it's a really messed up way of seeing things. Um, I mean, these comments, I don't, I don't have an, enough time to read all these. These are amazing. And I would encourage people that are listening to this podcast, go back. And I think if you watch this interview with Mike on YouTube, you'll be able to see the comments and there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, Mike, before we talk about what you're going to be doing on Friday, I've got a, a few people. I love this from Connor, by the way, Connor McCannabis um, <laughs> on our on our he, he's he's doing my work for me and promoting a segment that's coming up tomorrow at 9 a.m. Mountain, 11 o'clock Eastern. He says maybe men with all these insecurities that are feeling threatened by these conversations need to look at psychedelics and therapy um, tomorrow at nine o'clock. We've got a roundtable. Um, I'm still trying to think of a creative name for it, um, but we're going to be talking about psychedelics. We're going to be talking about ayahuasca and psilocybin and how microdosing mushrooms is helping a lot of people deal with trauma and mental health, which is, I think, going to be a fascinating hour long conversation tomorrow. Um, some people are asking me to talk to you or, or to ask you about this uh, this event that goes on. I think uh, somewhere here in Alberta, this uh, where did I see it? Uh, I feel bad. I can't find it now. Oh, connected men. What's this all about? Is this, uh, yes. Are you tied in with it? What's this all about? I'm, I'm just seeing it now yeah, for the first time. Yeah, so, 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 so I founded an organization called connected men. Okay. Uh, it's, it's connect apostrophe D the intent is to do exactly what we've talked about, create a space where guys can come together and literally practice feeling they can practice that vulnerability and soar is the framework that we base that on. And we just share, we have a theme every week that we dive into. If one of the guys has something they need to unpack that's not related to the theme, well, they're obviously welcome to do that. So, you know, we've talked about grief, we've talked about loss, we've talked about love, we've talked about uh, achievement, we've talked about pushing your edge, how do you strive? And diving in real deep. And again, the rules of engagement are simple. We speak with emotion, we practice getting out of our head and into our heart. We're not there to fix anything. So again, if I tell you that I have a problem, I'm struggling with my marriage, I'm struggling with my kids, I'm struggling with whatever, we're there to hear you. We're there to allow you to express, how do, how do, you, how do you feel? And again, I practice with the guys, we start with the physical, because for guys, most of us are, are pretty attuned to what's going on with us physically. So we'll start with that and we'll sit and we'll do that slow down. We'll do that. You know, we start with a five to 10 minute meditation and then we just check in and, you know, right now my back's a little tight, jaws tight. And then we move into that emotional component. What are you feeling? I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling uplifted. I'm feeling freaking inspired right now. And then we'll dive into our theme and then we'll, again, do sort of round table. So right now, uh, because of COVID, obviously, we're, we're meeting virtually. Yeah. Uh, we meet every Wednesday night at 630 Mountain Time. Uh, if anybody wants to join us, it's it's wide open and it's it's free. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we limit numbers. I think our, we're probably good up to a maximum of 12. Uh, we've had as many as 16 in, in a live environment. But yeah, it's just, it's incredible. When guys come together with intention, man, ugh, the things that happen are incredible. 
Mike, you're uh, about to undertake uh, this, you say Goggins Challenge, is that what this is? Challenge for a safe place uh, coming up on Friday. I've linked, uh, to, we'll show it here on the screen, but if people are looking to link to the website, I uh, they can just follow me on Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. I've linked to it there as well and to you. Um, tell us what this is all about. I know that you're, you, you have a, a huge conviction when it comes to the Strathcona Shelter Society uh, based on your personal experience and obviously the tragic uh, murder of, of your girlfriend. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so I sit on the board of the Strathcona Shelter Society. I'm also also an ultra marathoner. So that uh, that picture on the cover of my book is me running in Costa Rica. Um, David Goggins is is a is a pretty well known badass uh, former Navy SEAL. Um, just an amazing story himself. So he does this thing he calls the Goggins Challenge once every year, where he runs four miles every four hours for forty eight hours. Um, so I'm going to be undertaking that. I did that last year really to talk about how, you know, safe at home during COVID wasn't always safe at home for those living in abusive uh, situations. This year I'm doing the same thing starting Friday morning. I will be running four miles every four hours for 48 hours. And my hope is to have this conversation and also to raise funds for the Strathcona Shelter Society. I love it. Well, I know that real talkers are going to be very interested and motivated to help you out on this. Um, we've seen that every single time uh, someone like yourself comes on this show and inspires our audience. And so people can find that link again through my Twitter. They can find you there as well. Uh, Mike, what can I say? I mean, you've, you've opened up the door for us to have an incredibly valuable conversation here. And, and I would go so far as to say you've probably changed some people's lives today uh, by making an impact on them directly or inspiring and educating um, someone in their life who's heard your message, who's going to share your message and now take action. And uh, on behalf of this audience that I care about very much, this community, thank you. And, uh, and, and as a casual friend of yours, I'm very proud of you. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. You got it. Mike Cameron, what an unbelievable story that is. I encourage you to support him as you can. His Goggins Challenge for a Safe Place fundraiser starts on Friday, 48 hours. Uh, this is a guy that walks the walk. And real talkers, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. But Blake, by the way, says, oh, I cry at the silliest things, TV shows, movies, 40 years old. It says I'm the exact same, Jespo. Yeah, that from Blake. Um my wife, Carrie, if we're watching, it's like The Art of Racing in the Rain, Racing in the Rain which is this great dog movie. Sam, have you seen it, by the way? I have not. Please oh, tell me about it. Well, um, the, the dog featured in the movie is a dead ringer for yours. It's a doppelganger for your dog. So you're going to have to to brace yourself emotionally even more. Yeah, she's she's still pretty new to my family. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Yet. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would recommend, you know, pop some popcorn or whatever All your right. thing is. Get the family well, together. Watch the movie. It's actually just a fabulous movie. But I'm the type when, when we watch a movie or a show that's going to, you know, like Grey's Anatomy. I don't even really care about Grey's Anatomy. As a matter of fact, I always scoff at it. Carrie says, let's watch Grey's. I say, Grey's is so unrealistic. There's like this like ridiculous, there's like a tsunami or like a mass shooting or a, or a huge explosion that happens every single episode. I'm like, everybody would leave Seattle if this was an actu accurate description of what life in Seattle was like. But I digress. I'm always the guy with tears in his eyes watching Grey's Anatomy. I don't care. Come at me, bro. I don't care. To me, it's like I was raised in a home where displays of emotion were, were welcomed and important. And I'm an emotional guy. My highs are high. My lows are low that's me and everybody's different everybody's wired differently but i think getting that message out especially to young people and, and today we're talking about men and we're talking about boys and other days we'll talk about women or we'll talk about society and people in general including tomorrow from 9 to 10 a.m mountain time 
But uh, I think it's such an important conversation to have. And I'm so grateful. Heavy D says this is Heavy D says, I think that's the best interview that Real Talk's done yet, which is great. Haas says, I cry watching American Idol. Amber says, cry, get it out. It's okay. I agree. Michelle says, when my boy 17 years of age cries, I just hug him and I'm present for him. I don't try to fix it. I just hold space for him. That's beautiful, Michelle. Ryan says, I find myself crying at things I wouldn't imagine, especially after having kids. That's huge. If you're a parent, I don't even know if I should tell this. This is such a tragic uh, friend of mine who's a firefighter. Should I tell? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. This is this is just so, you know, a friend of mine, he shared with me that he had such a tough call. Um, they responded to a call. This is just horrific. A father of a newborn baby was was cradling in the rocking chair, was cradling the child, trying to get the child to sleep. And dad slumped over and suffocated the baby. And my, I'm going to start crying talking about this. So my buddy, so they respond, right? Fire, ambulance, everything. Obviously, the child can't be saved. And the father is wrecked, like wrecked. And my buddy told me, because he's a father of two, when they got back to the fire hall, he said it was it was like he'd never experienced before because the guys on that pump, the guys on that truck are dads. And it was, he told me at the time anyway that it was the most difficult call he's ever been to. And the debrief that they had to participate in, and you think of trauma and what we understand about trauma and how it can root itself if it's not properly addressed, and it just reiterated to me as he shared that. And I'm not the type to ask my pals that are in law enforcement or first response or in the Canadian military. A good friend of mine flies helicopters. We don't ask. I don't ask those stories. I don't ask for those details. Um, but I do know that the tools and making these tools available for people to confront their grief and to be able to con- to talk about their feelings and to experience grief is so, so important I feel like we go through things together as this. This is such a special community. I know I keep saying this. I feel like we're experiencing things. I this. I don't even know what to say. This is absolutely amazing. I love you guys. Jackie says, I made the mistake of watching the art of racing in the rain while I was on a flight back from Mexico and says I had internalized sobbing through the entire movie. Lisa says, I experienced watching and crying at a movie with a man for the first time with my new partner, and it was a beautiful experience. That from Lisa. And because we could use a lighter moment, Scott says, all right, Scott's throwing this in. Everybody's taking a break, I think, from raisins and pineapple on pizza. Scott says popcorn could be a good discussion for this live chat. Do you pop it in the hot air popper or in butter in a pot? And I might throw in microwave popcorn as well. We could get that debate going. I um I have like a, a cabinet popcorn machine. So oh, you're it's like one of these it's actually like an, an oil popper setup. But uh, even when I make stovetop popcorn, it's just yeah, I, my my go to for quick easy popcorn is a, a pot on the stove with a little bit of oil in it. Nice and simple. Very I well also done. like dressing it differently. I love putting like um uh uh, like chili powder and a little bit of sugar on popcorn. It's really delicious yeah. instead of the butter and salt. So yeah, you can kind of mess with it a little bit differently when you're, when you make it fresh like that. 
I just checked the clock for the first time in ages and we're, we're encroaching upon the first ever three hour edition of Real Talk, which actually means I'm pretty sure based on our license that we're about to lose our live audio stream on Mixler. <laughs> it, so, it, it is good so, for three hours a day. So we get three hours a day live streaming on Mixler. Um, did you know, by the way, that Mixler is a great way to access Real Talk if you're on the road? We've had some people chime in and say, hey, what's the best way to stream audio if we want to listen to the show live? Download the Mixler app and you can find us there and you can also link to it right off our it gives you an alert as soon as we go Jesperson.com. That's a great thing. The alert, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a perfect thing. It's also it's my check to make sure that we are live is it, it comes up on my phone after we go live. <laughs> Checks and balances, yeah. baby. Checks and balances. The team at Eden Landscaping wants to remind you that a backyard kitchen can be part of your reality with nothing more than a phone call or a visit to landscapeedmonton.ca. They're the experts on patios and decks and gazebos and greenhouses and intricate brick work and fencing and paving stone walkways. And are you starting to imagine these things like I am right now? Are you starting to look out into your own property and say, boy, would a gazebo ever look beautiful there? What about one of those swim spas that that everybody wants? The team at Eden Landscaping has been doing this for two decades and they're the best at what they do. Check them out online and tell them Jespo sent you. We also wanted to remind you that the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge right now is your go-to, not only for the best selection of Ram 1500 half tons in the entire province of Alberta, but also that 2021 Jeep lineup that everybody's talking about. They've got the Rubicon Wranglers and the Gladiators that everybody's, oh man, those Gladiators are so very cool. The Grand Cherokee now in a seven-passenger edition, the fuel-efficient Compass, and then of course that Grand Wagoneer that's coming out in just a little bit. You'll find the best selection at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Our thanks to the teams at DQ at Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You thinking about a date night? When's the last time you were able to drop five bucks and impress your date? I'll tell you, you can do it at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park at their two for five buck treat night. Every night after eight o'clock for five bucks, you can mix and match any two medium dipped cones or Sundays. That's right, two for $5 treat night after 8 p.m. every night at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And our reminder that the team at Local Waste is gearing up like the rest of us are for Trash Talk. That's coming up on Friday. We want to know what you need to get off your chest. Blow off a little steam. You can send us the emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local Waste loves to talk trash. As a matter of fact, they've been doing it for a quarter century, giving you a better, more local family-owned and operated alternative to those big faceless international garbage corporations. So whether it's a, a tiny mom paw shop or whether you're running a hotel, the team at Local Waste wants your business and you can find them at localwaste.ca. As mentioned, tomorrow we're going to get into psychedelics. I, I mean, maybe not. Well, although that's an idea, Sam. Hey, that's an idea. Oh, oh, oh you, you want to actually get into well, psychedelics? Well, I was thinking if we're going to tell the audience we're going to get into psychedelics, <laughs> then maybe we should get into psychedelics. I, I'm, I, it'd be a new experience for me. Do you, do you trust me driving this ship with, with that going on? Uh, no. Yeah. No, I don't. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll just keep it to myself and you can guess whether or not I did or not. But in all seriousness, we're going to learn about ayahuasca and psilocybin and how it fits into mental health. Plus, Chief Alan Adam joins to talk to us about downstream impacts of resource mining coming up on a Thursday edition of Real Talk.